Hi, this is Alan Leeds, former tour director for James Brown, Prince, and D'Angelo, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Hmm. I get high with a little help from my friends. I am going to try with a little help from my friends. Of course, that little ditty, uh, supposedly sung by a Billy Shears but of course, really, Mr. Ringo Starr, uh, which was the Lennon and McCartney tune written specifically for their drummer on the Sgt. Pepper's album. Uh, He usually got one per album. Uh, Most are completely forgettable uh, in the catalog, uh, but certainly not this one. And today, I have a little help from my friends, uh, Brian Reisman and Jeff Slate. Together, the three of us are going to have a good grand old time uh, in just a few minutes. Boy, I just sounded really old right there. Um, they provided commentary on a couple of re-released UK rock and roll films, and that will be our topic today. All right, so uh, how's everyone doing this week? I am back from a little vacation to Oregon uh, just to have a scenery change after six months of sheltering mostly at home. Uh, I hope all of you found some time to find a getaway or or two over the summer. Um, I bet you didn't even know I was gone. Uh, I did have two deeper digs uh, put into the can and uh, they were set for release while away. Um... But then I came home to a uh, shortened week and uh, a pile of stuff to do before getting back into the show. All right. All right. Some quick news. Quick news. Uh, First, the episode one redux of Rock and Roll Archaeology is about complete, and I expect we will release it next week. In fact, I heard uh, the latest uh, iteration this morning, and yes, it, it will be out next week. There's just a few little tiny things to fix, and we're good to go. We made some improvements, uh, cleaned some things up, you know, uh, but in the end, uh, you know, we, we are just way better at what we do now, and we just wanted to make sure our entry episode is up to par. Uh, We've been noticing a lot of people are coming in uh, and listening to episode one. Uh, Maybe they listen to episode 19, the latest one, and then they go right back to episode one. And we just didn't feel that that uh, was uh, was uh, putting a good foot forward, if you will. Um, Not sure if we'll do uh, the other uh, episodes. I mean, up to about episode five, maybe six. Um, we're still kind of figuring things out. Um, definitely the Beatles episode seven and eight, uh, meet the Beatles one and two. Uh, we're, we're feeling pretty confident at that point. Although my delivery has gotten much better over the last few episodes. So who knows? I might go back and redo all of them. I don't know. Uh, but right now we just wanted to do episode one. Uh, and that was a pretty painless experiment. So it's quite possible that we will uh, do more. But uh, let's see what you all think of this redux first, eh? All right. Next, um, we have a lot going on. Um, uh, quite a bit. I can't 
speak about until they're ready to be publicly announced. And I got one today for you. I want to let our podcast family know we have been selected for a session in the upcoming Podcast Movements virtual conference next month. We are super excited to be selected to talk about music licensing. The session is called Licensing Music for Podcasts, Today's Challenges, and Tomorrow's Opportunities. Whoa, you say, music in licensing in podcasting? WTF? Yeah, so a lot of interesting things have been going on behind the scenes here at Pantheon, and this is one that we can announce. Uh, we've been working with a company called Pex, and they deliver independent video music analytics and rights management services to enable creators, rights holders, and marketers to find, measure, and leverage the value of content across the web. That's uh, their uh, professional uh, uh, explanation of what they do. I know it kind of sounds scary uh, to the wild west of podcasting, but what they want to achieve is an exchange for podcast creators, such as ourselves, and music rights holders that will mutually benefit both sides. And diggers, Pantheon is working with PEX to achieve this with music-oriented podcasts, of which, let's face it, we're the pros. Very exciting stuff. As soon as we have uh, an official date and time, we will announce it everywhere. But PM20 is happening. Eh, well, virtually, that is. And that's all I can say about it this week. Tune in for more. Uh, as I get the info, I will uh, let everyone know here, uh, obviously on social, on the website, and all the other good stuff. Of course, keep the cards and letters coming, and we always love the unhinged rant. Tell a friend. Visit PantheonPodcast.com for more information on all of our podcasts. Okay, that's it. Let's get to it. Oh, what would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song And I'll try not to sing out a key Yes, we have friends in the house today, diggers. I'm very excited to share this with all of you. Today, I get to have both Brian Reisman and Jeff Slate join me to discuss two recent re-releases by a company called Kino Lorber Entertainment. The 1973 release of the Ringo Starr David Essex vehicle, That'll Be the Day, and the 1965 release of Pop Gear, or also known as, aka in America, Go Go Mania. Both films were made in the UK, and both give an interesting perspective on the emerging rock and roll scene there, one in real time and the other looking back after the era has passed. Pop Gear, or Go Go Mania in the US, 
uh, and I'm going to stick with the original title, Pop Gear, from now on, is really a cavalcade of emerging UK acts in 1964-65, capitalizing on the gigantic success of the Beatles. In fact, the Beatles are featured in book and uh, live performances, though their segments were taken from their command performance in 1963. In essence, uh, they're kind of like the loss leader to get the kids into the theater to see the other 15 acts represented. All the other acts are presented in the same studio with slight set modifications, lip syncing to their current hits of the period. Now, some of these acts uh, you are certainly familiar with. The Animals, Herman's Hermits, Spencer Davis with a 15-year-old Steve Winwood, Peter and Gordon. Uh, but there is also a contingent of also-rans that never made it big in America. But as a, a rock and roll artifact, it is fascinating to see and hear why that might be the case. Just what a digger is after. In fact... You know, Jeff points out 1965 is the dividing line between those UK acts that, you know, maintain that old music hall or even vaudevillian shtick of the past to the more authentic rockers that went on to dominate the latter 60s. And it's pretty obvious on who managed to cross the divide and, and who didn't when you see this film. That'll Be the Day is a fictional story about 1950s rock and roll in the UK, starring a, a few real rockers, David Essex in the lead role, Ringo Starr as his buddy, Billy, Billy Fury, uh, and a cameo with Keith Moon playing, um, well, Keith Moon. Uh, it's a tale of teenage rebellion breaking away from the staid class system entrenched in the UK that the rock and roll era seemed to crack. Uh, interestingly, it is made in 1973, the same year American Graffiti comes out. And man, these two films are polar opposites in tone. Both have similar soundtracks of the pioneers of rock and roll. Uh, but George Lucas is a far better filmmaker than Frederick Good, uh, the director of That'll Be the Day. Um, both are about coming of age and trying to find your future. But in American Graffiti, you know, we Americans look back fondly on the era of a simpler time. Its UK cousin is far bleaker because post-war Britain was bleaker while America during the same time was booming. Um, both films reflect that concept from the cultures from where they came. Uh, the lead character in That'll Be the Day is kind of an asshole, and he refuses to buy into the stage system and goes off to find his own way of independence. It's dark, uh, such as with the Ringo character getting beat up enough to end up in the hospital and never return to the story. In another scene, uh, Essex's character commits rape, and when he goes, or when he does settle down uh, and has a kid, uh, as we see like his father before him, he runs out and to uh, go find his musical dreams. In fact, this film spawned a sequel called Stardust, uh, which I hear is, is the better of the two films, um, which is the second act of the story, uh, I'm told. Yeah, neither film ages very well. Um, as I said with That'll Be the Day, the lead is a bit of an asshole, and the rape scene's conclusion is an 
ever so slight dressing down by Ringo's character. Uh, it's a very sticky wicket in the Me Too uh, moment. Um, Pop Gear is even worse for wear, mostly because it's hosted by one of the true worthless human beings in UK music, Jimmy Savile, um, you know, who it was later discovered committed all kinds of sexual atrocities. Uh, me personally, I never understood the appeal of that scumbag. Uh, I mean, I always used to look at that guy and go, well, who the fuck is he? And why is he have anything to do with the great rock and roll coming out of the UK? It's a little jarring to see his mug show up to intro the bands, but for a peek into the past, they are great examples of both British TV and British film, making uh, uh, this new music, you know, well, being made about this new music taking over the world in the late 20th century. It's also really interesting to see how that'll be the day can be compared to American Graffiti. And in a weird sort of way, Pop Gear is sort of the UK version of the famous Tammy show. Um, both were originally released in 1964. It's very interesting to compare and contrast. So keep that uh, when when viewing these. Uh, keep that in mind when viewing these uh, these two uh, films. Now, what is best is the commentary uh, by Jeff and Brian, especially together for Pop Gear. Brian's solo on "That'll Be the Day." Both films and both commentary tracks are what a rock and roll archaeologist will want to tune in for. Lots of facts with 50-plus years of hindsight by two great rock and roll journalists. Jeff Slate has been on Deeper Digs before. In fact, uh, we got on so well uh, in the first interview that we made it a two-parter. Uh, he's written pieces for uh, New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, Esquire, Rolling Stone, NBC News, and many other publications. Uh, he contributed the liner notes to the 50th anniversary edition of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and is the author of the authorized Roy Orbison, a biography of the legendary uh, man with uh, uh, Roy's sons. In 2018, Jeff wrote the liner notes for Bob Dylan's The Bootleg Series, Volume 14, More Blood, More Tracks. Uh, he's also a bona fide rock star in his own right. He co-founded the band The Mindless Thinkers in the 1980s, founded The Badge in uh, the 90s, and has performed and worked with countless rock luminaries, including Pete Townsend of The Who, Roger McGuinn of The Birds, Sheryl Crow, and others. Um, he has a band with uh, David Bowie Sideman, Earl Slick, Slick and Slate, and his current band, Jeff Slate and Friends, are both mainstays of the uh, Northeast music scene. Veteran entertainment journalist Brian Reisman has interviewed countless pop culture luminaries from around the world. Uh, he's test-driven a Corvette with Rob Halford, visited Lemmy's apartment, and has been an on-camera interviewer of celebrities uh, such as Oprah Winfrey and Hugh Jackman. He's contributed to the New York Times, Playboy, Grammy. In fact, I believe he's a Grammy uh, voting uh, member. American Way, MSM Movies, and over 100 other media outlets. And has written extensive liner notes for rock icons, including Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, and ACDC. A graduate of New York University's Titch School of the Arts, Brian is the author of the biography Bon Jovi, The Story. And I don't want to take away uh, from his own musical skills. He is a known drummer around New York City himself. Brian should be 
known to all of you diggers uh, with his Pantheon podcast, Side Jams, where uh, he talks to known artists about their hobbies outside of music. Uh, an even deeper dig, if you will, into these folks. Uh, go check out uh, his interview with uh, Serge Tankian from System of a Down or Dave Ellison from Megadeth or the most recent one with Brad Gillis from Night Ranger. Plus, Brian has been on Deeper Digs before when I interviewed him about the uh, Rockstars at Home book. Okay, let's get on it. Let's have some fun. First up, we'll be Brian alone to discuss That'll Be the Day, and then uh, Mr. Slate will join for the second half to break down their commentary on Pop Gear. Here are Brian Reisman and Jeff Slate. Baby, do you understand me now? Sometimes I feel a little mad. But don't you know that no one alive can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem to be bad. Welcome back to Deeper Digs, Brian Reisman. It's great to have you on the show again. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, first, do my best to uh, uh, let's you. see. Well, let's see. Let's let's see if this <laughs> works here. Um, uh, first, uh, I have to ask. I understand you kind of have a newish podcast called Side Jams. You want to you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you, you may you may have heard of it, Christian. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. I People have been bugging me to do a podcast for a while. People are probably- You mean actually, me. I, yes, <laughs> you. And then in years ago, I actually did a podcast on my site. I mean, it's brianreisman.com, but it, the original yeah. title is Attention Deficit Delirium, which is a mouthful. It was basically ADD. Yeah. Because culturally, I'm like that. You and I have discussed the fact that we're very diverse people. And we, you know, I, I will like I'll talk about a crazy horror science fiction film one minute, then I'll listen to like a goth album the next, or I'll listen to a folk album, or, you know, I'm reading a biography of uh, an actor. I, I don't- I'm not always restricted by genre, mm -hmm. even though I am a genre buff on a lot of things. But so I did that for a while and it was, I, I didn't have a professional mic. I was really doing it on Skype and just basic audio stuff or talking to people on the phone. And it was okay. I mean, it, it but it was just a lot of work. And I'm one of those people that's upset. I don't know if you do this with, you, with your own, but like I get obsessive about like, I had one podcast where someone would say, you know, and I'm a lot and it drove me nuts. So I just edited them all out. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, we like, do that. It was, it was, it was like this, this certain cadence they had in their speak. It drove me crazy. So I, but then I, people say, well, you got to do it. You got to do a podcast. You should do something that will, uh, you know, that, uh, I don't like, do a movie podcast. I'm like, everybody has a freaking movie podcast. Everybody's got a music podcast. Who cares what I think? I mean, some people might, but who cares really? Because everyone's got one. And unless you're a celebrity or you have something really original, no one's going to care. And then I thought about it. And I, and one of the things I'm good at doing is getting people to talk. And I talk a lot, but I'll get somebody going. I remember, and I was thinking like I interviewed um, Lana Perea, who was uh, the evil queen on Once Upon a Time on ABC. And I'd interviewed her years earlier for about Swingtown, the show for Playboy.com. And then like several years later, we do this interview and she remembered me. Um, what was weird is she had actually done the interview. I think she was, uh, I was going to a funeral that day and she was managed to talk to me enemy about this show. I'm like, really? I was like, you were really composed during that interview. I had no idea that you were going to this funeral. And and then she, we, we had bonded over that. And she spoke to me for a, like a, a one page piece. We spoke to me for 90 minutes. Hmm. We just talked for like 90 minutes. I turned it into three features eventually. But I will do that with people. And sometimes you talk to someone and you don't get to use the excess stuff. You get into their, you know, again, the, the, the podcast is about people's hobbies and outside passions. So I yeah, said, yeah. you know, 
this is it. This is the idea. Like you get to talk to people about cool shit and then you don't ever get to use it. So why not just talk to people about stuff that no one else talks to them about? I mean, yeah, I, I like uh, yesterday I spoke to David Ellison about coffee and yes, he's talked about it before, but still I kind of feel like we, we went into certain areas that maybe don't always get discussed. Yeah. You, you, I just, you covered just, new ground. Yeah. You just kind of, you have to do a little research, but most of the time I just riff off, I, I riff off something. I, I did an interview with somebody recently and their publicist is like, that was a really well-researched interview. And I was like, I actually didn't have any questions prepared. I just kind of talked and just, and, and I, I didn't get a response. I don't know if there was ever like, Hey, wait a minute. Um, Ryan, you're yeah, not supposed to say that you're supposed to say, yeah. I did, you know what? I, I'm honest, but I, I think it's actually more impressive because people are like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what would happen if you had done your research? Like, who knows? But so I, I like doing that. And I, and I appreciate you guys. I know you bugged me at the beginning before it even had gone on the air, quote unquote, you know, and I'm the lone wolf guy. Like, Oh, I'll just get all my stuff and see what happens. I'm like, yeah, this is too much. And I, I, I got to get into a network. I'm like, oh yeah, Christian told me I should just <laughs> join Pantheon. And it, yes, you know, the numbers shot up after that. You know, so. yeah. Good, 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 good. Well, we, we're excited to have Side Jams as part of our uh, network of uh, now 50 uh, music-oriented uh, podcasts. Man, 50. It was like 30, I think, when I joined. Yeah, it, it was probably about that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, more, yeah, more coming, more coming. I got, a, I got an email this morning I'm pretty excited about with an with a upcoming uh, podcast I've been trying to get for a year over wow. a year trying to get this podcast. I should have played hard to get. Um, <laughs> no, it's just, it's, it, it's a celebrity, uh, uh, there we uh, go. uh, sort of thing. And it's, um, uh, it's just, um, uh, it was something that, that came to my attention and then I helped work it. And then, and then, and then, uh, to be honest with you, uh, a natural disaster occurred and that, that really was the hold up more than anything. Else. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so speaking of natural disasters, I, I have to ask, as I ask everybody, you know, how are you doing during the COVID, uh, uh, pandemic uh, and your professional life. Well, and I sit there and I'm confused. I go, what would Christian do? <laughs> and I'm like, and Christian would tell me, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> do whatever you want. That's what you're trying to say. That's right. No, I, you know what? I mean, it was tricky. Actually, it wasn't really tricky at first because I can burrow. Um, you know, the, the first six weeks, I was pretty much in my apartment most of the time. I'd go out to do a little food shopping. Um, I hated the fact that I deal with all these crazy people who didn't really think there was anything going on. So oh, I didn't see my girlfriend. The hoax. Yeah. Or uh, the people uh, that just are inconvenienced by wearing a freaking mask. Yeah. So I, mm. I mean, Long Island, they actually, they were, it, it had pretty quickly people were doing, I mean, Cuomo took charge, which is good. But, you know, my girlfriend lives in Brooklyn and uh, I didn't see her for the first six weeks. And I think we were, she, you know, she was, we're both concerned, but I think she was already, it wasn't just like me giving something to her. What if she had something, give it to me, like you know, that kind of a thing. And we were both really careful. She stayed inside most of the time. It's harder for her in Brooklyn because, you know, she doesn't have a car and half the people there aren't wearing masks. Whereas for me, I'm in the burbs. Um, I, you know, I've been in the same place for like 20 years now. And so I had a, yeah, I have a place to park and I can just take a drive somewhere if I want to. I can walk around at night. I can carry a mask. I don't need one because there's nobody out at like 11 o'clock at night where I am. So yeah. sometimes I do, but the rest of the time I'm wearing a mask. I'm being careful. Mm -hmm. So it, I just had a little bit more flexibility, but I can sit there. I was like, oh, okay, I'll catch up some movies, do some Zoom calls, but I still had work actually. I've been busy. So I really, it's gone by easier, quicker, more quickly for me because I have stuff to get done. I have to prep for this podcast or I have to do you know, record a new podcast. Um, I, I still have work. I'm making as much money as I did last year and I have less outlets. So that's kind of weird. That is weird. People, there are people are just people that are hiring me are hiring me. And also Kino has been keeping me busy. I had a whole bunch of Blu-ray stuff that had been assigned months ago. That's been gradually coming in throughout the year. Uh, so, I mean, it's starting to get to me now. I'm in Boston visiting my folks. I hadn't seen them in five months. So I quarantined for two weeks before I got here. You know, it, it, 
they're doing okay. My mom's a piano teacher, so she misses having the kids come in. I think that's mm. a big thing for her. She's in her 80s, and they both are. And, and so, but she does a little online teaching. I don't know. It's uh, different friends of mine are handling it different ways. Mm-hmm. I think it's harder for people that are in the city or who are isolated. Yeah. Um, I mean, those, I, those know, of us who do our work online, uh, you yeah. know, it, 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 it's definitely easier than uh, somebody who has to, you know, get up and put themselves at risk uh, in a, on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not, I, I love my friends and family. I love making new friends. And yet I'm not overly fond of people. <laughs> and especially not these days when people don't want to believe what's going on. Or people are just, I get people are tired, actually. It's it's difficult. But whatever, you know, I, it's, it is interesting just to see how, you know, I, I've been thinking about, you know, how are people going to, you know, I, I used to cover Broadway shows all the time. Yeah. Well, that, that's but, the know, second I, part of this question is, you know, what do you see on the other side of this for all of us uh, music and other nerds? Because I know you do a lot of uh, not yeah. just music. You do Broadway, you do television movies, movie, even movie theaters, man. I mean, you know, people don't go to you aren't at movie theaters. I mean, there's a communal thing that people are missing. And I think that's what I miss right now. I don't necessarily I don't I'm not always a huge fan of large gatherings, actually. Like I like to go to shows. I like to go to show Broadway shows and concerts and, and movies. And then just sometimes I just don't want to deal with people. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be in a large throng of people. I I don't mind going to a show where it's like 300 people out of a thousand, you know, because it's like a little more space to move. And that's what's going to happen in the future, isn't it? We're not really going to have these packed places. I mean, I interviewed Tommy Lee for Grammy a few weeks ago. Um, and he was talking about the fact that you go to Asia, people have been wearing those masks forever. If you're sick, you wear it. But in America, it's a sign of weakness, right? right. So people don't want to wear them. And, and now in concerts, I don't think you're going to have, you're going to have every other seat's going to be empty because it's going to be a transition. The problem is, is people, I'm, I'm, I've accepted it. I'm not happy about it, but I've accepted the fact that life is going to forever be changed. It will not be the same. And people are being stubborn about it. You just can't run out to a bar or run out to the beach or run out to go see, you know, Great White or Dawkin or the, or the, or the chain smokers uh, and congregate like that. I, I, I know people are having a tough time, but I, the way I look at it, man, there was a massive explosion in what in Beirut. Yeah. And there was a ma- and there have been, there's famine. Uh, I think a quarter of the Bangladeshi, the population of Bangladesh is now displaced because of flooding. You have so many other horrible things. Yeah. It's not great here, but it could be, we could be even, even worse shape. You know, I mean, I wasn't affected much by the storm. I know some people have been on top power for days. You know, that's a difficult yeah. situation. Yeah. But in a lot, and generally in other countries, there are a lot of things that are far worse than what we're dealing with. It, the pandemic sucks. I'm not making light of it. But I try to remind myself that I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Like it means, I think the average person here is fine. There are some people that are older. I think it's very hard if you're a senior citizen and you're isolated, people who've got medical conditions. But I'm, I'm just trying to remind myself to keep, to keep saying that things could be worse. Yeah, just you know. Well, that's a good attitude to 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 take. Um, you know, uh, one one uh, comment I might make is that yeah, we we are watching the end of one world and uh, the beginning of another. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it was just uh, uh, in some ways it's sort of a natural sort of um, change. I mean, you know, World War One you can point to a uh, hundred years ago as uh, you know the uh, the. The, the point of the end of one world and, and the beginning of, of a new one. Uh, yeah. Hopefully it's not going to take two world wars and uh, hundreds of millions of, of deaths to uh, birth of the new world, which then became, you know, what we call the quote unquote American century. And I think yeah. we're, we're coming to the end of that. And, um, you know, due to a lot of factors, uh, you know, the, the, the cyber age that we live in, climate change, um, uh, overpopulation, uh, the great extinction, on and on and on, is 
going to make the 21st century. We're just seeing the beginnings of the 21st century. And it, it's not, yeah. it's not too different from kind of like the movie that we're going to talk about today, which, which was at the same time, um, exploring a world that, had gone away in a nostalgic uh, uh which was this was the cusp of change for england i mean yeah. this was the, this was sort of like well this was the really the this this movie that'll be the day really in a way sort of chronicles the beginnings of rock and roll in england i mean it shows you the kind of working class people that were at the heart of the of the british invasion mm -hmm. i mean rock and roll was really very much the middle i mean you know working class and middle class are sort of synonymous but sort of not because you can be white collar you can be blue collar i grew up outside of boston and people in america don't like to talk about class distinctions in boston you're pretty aware of what class you come from it's it's i always noticed that working with different people i worked as a an office assistant you know for an uh, energy efficiency company back in the mid-1990s after i got out of school and before i really got full-time into writing you know, and a lot of those guys were electricians and they didn't have a college education, but you know, they weren't stupid. They, it's, that's another stereotype also, right? Yeah. But some of them, you know, some of them were, were struggling and they worked for this company that would lay them off and hire them for a new gig and lay them off. And like their life was different than mine where I just had a consistent through, you know, through line there. And yet at the same time, I grew up very middle-class. My mother's a Cuban refugee. I mean, her, her father was a millionaire in Cuba, but Castro took care of that once he took over. And uh, my dad grew up in a small town in Illinois. My grandmother actually went to school with Ronald Reagan for like a year. We actually have a couple actual theater playbills. One of them, Reagan's on the bottom of the list as like a supporting really? actor. Wow. Yeah, my dad has these. It's interesting. I wasn't a Reagan fan, but it's still impressive. I mean, yeah. he was going to school with the future president of the United States. Yeah. He was a big man on campus and more of a, what would become a New Deal Democrat for a while, which is hilarious. He, he was. In retrospect. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had very, my dad had a PhD from MIT, but he was self-made. I mean, he didn't, you know, his parents couldn't afford all of that. He had to work his way through a lot of school and get scholarships and so i was yeah i mean i was very middle class but some of these guys that you just you still you sort of still felt a little like they were they thought oh he went to nyu and you know he did this and i'm like yeah right now i'm living to hold my folks you know <laughs> I'm, I'm making 25k a year and i you know and it, it, there was a little tension there sometimes and i see that even in suburban new york also yeah. Uh, you know, in New York City, people kind of rub elbows with everybody and you're kind of all reduced to the same class when you're on the street. You're not better than somebody else. You know what I mean? LA is a little different. You're in your car. So there's a, there's a bit more of it. It's funny that people don't talk about that, but rock and roll is very blue collar at its heart. It just managed to reach a wider audience later. Oh, but all these guys in no. all these guys in England were not that highly educated necessarily. They were they weren't going to go to college. This character here well, was one of the four percent yeah. who could have gone to college and he turns it down. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And now back to the program. Yeah. Uh, before we get too deep into that, obviously yeah. there's, there is some talk about uh, this film being, uh, you know, an allegory to John Lennon's life. And, and I'll, I'll ask a deeper question on that in a second. But yeah. as we know, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the draft uh, in the UK ended, uh, I think in 1958, which is the year that Lennon would have been, uh, you know, indoctrined uh, into uh, the, 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 the UK uh, military. Um, yeah. uh, and instead was, you know, uh, he and uh, all, that whole class of, uh, of early rockers uh, were allowed to go to art school, you know, and the, the lower classes, you know, prior to that, weren't you weren't allowed to do that sort of thing you were born as you were born into and you know if your father was a bricklayer well chances are you were going to be a bricklayer uh sort of which thing. is kind of funny here in america though what's interesting is you didn't necessarily have that circumstance but there was still the expectation yeah well your dad was a farmer you'd be a farmer your dad was a banker you'd be a banker whatever the profession was there still was a bit of that we thought we were a bit different but in some ways we're really not we're, no. we're different in the oh, we, we, yeah, we, we don't we don't we, 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 we don't want to discuss it as openly yes. yeah, yeah over there it's more acknowledged where yeah. you're from well there's that and let's face it they've been doing At it a lot longer then. than we have so uh you know mm -hmm. they're 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 a little bit more uh, calcified uh in that uh that sort of thing but but yeah it's uh, it is uh interesting to see and to know that uh you know in the uk especially and certainly here as well that uh you know most of the rockers did come out and it was the language itself of the music uh the expertise required is that of the lower classes i mean in fact you know let's face it it all starts with the lowest class and that's the african-american experience and the blues yeah. and, and the other music that 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 comes from and that you know it, it it makes sense that the the next rung on the ladder would that would find appeal in in that uh that that lower rung which you know they were supposedly kept from until you get uh you know media that uh you know doesn't know borders and uh, doesn't know uh, jim crow and things like that and uh, yeah, yeah so all right so uh, the commentary on that'll be the day um you know first let's give the diggers a quick synopsis of the film made in 1973 it's an early uk uh, rock and roll story right yeah the guy jim mcclain who's played by david essex who became famous actually the year this movie came out rock on was a hit he became like this teen idol even though really he wasn't a teen pop guy he really was a rocker he had some pop influences and he actually i didn't know that much about him so when i dug into his music i'm like oh my god this guy actually really by his fourth album is almost like a prog guy doing this epic concept album the first track is 10 minutes long and like but you know it's basically a guy who can go to university he drops out he doesn't you know his uh his father left him when he was younger his father had been in the war and came back mm -hmm. and then he just couldn't stick around which was common that happened in, i looked at you know in the uk and the us there were a lot of divorces mm -hmm. um i found a new york times article from the 40s which talked about the fact you know you had people that got quickie marriages before they left and then they come home and the war is such a, a, a life-altering experience they're not going to be able to relate to their spouse when they come back they've yeah. seen things and done things that they can't they're not the same person that no. that that the, that was married a prior yeah. Yeah. or there were you know class differences again marrying 
hiring somebody from a different class or uh, they, they had a whole bunch of reasons why things didn't work out. Some of it was economic, some of it was disappointments. So, you know, his father leaves. We don't really get much of an explanation of that. I did email, you know, I'd already done one pass of the commentary, the whole thing. And then I happened upon the website for Ray Connolly, who was a screenwriter who interviewed the Beatles back in the day. He'd, he'd written about them all throughout the 60s. He was the one that was really interviewed on the BBC about their breakup. I mean, Paul and John each had stories. Mm-hmm. And I think John didn't want to, I wanted him to hold off. And yeah. Paul gave him his story. Yeah, Ron, yeah. He, he was the, he was the, the one was that John, guy. that, that said John, uh, John came out in yeah. Toronto out of the shower and said, hey, yeah. I'm done with the Beatles, uh, but you can't tell anybody. Wink, wink. But Connolly, Connolly was like, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Should I say something? You know. And then Paul tells him something, and then yeah. Paul, he runs with Paul's yeah. story, and then John's like, "Hey," it's like, yeah. "Well, you told me not to tell anybody." Yeah. Uh, wink, wink. Um, yeah. And I mean, so I find Ray Connolly's website. I mean, he's like he's like 80 now. I mean, he's still he's still writing. Um, I just emailed him like. Over the course of a week, I, I delayed it. I told Kino, I, I found the writer. I really should talk to this guy. So I emailed him like 20 questions. He answered all of them. He was very, he was, he was great. I mean, he gave you a lot of great stories. And he confirmed that it was not about John Lennon. People think it's about John Lennon's early life. It's not. It's actually inspired by a Harry Nilsson, Harry Nilsson song. Um, that's also, you know, that, that David Putnam had talked to him about. Yeah, like, this, 1945, right? Uh, the Harry 41, Nilsson. Yeah. I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. 41, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so that song, the lyrics, I quote some of the lyrics in there, and it's basically setting up the framework for the story. A guy who's like a carny worker, and like he marries, and he abandons his wife, and then his son becomes a carny worker, and meets someone, and not sure they're going to stay together. And that's kind of what this is about. This is about a cycle of life. And back then, Ray, Ray told me that you know only maybe 4% of young men got to go to university. So he's a smart guy who has a chance to do something, and he decides he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to conform to the system. Something that people don't understand about British life is that America, America had, by the end of the 40s, the rationing was over. And yeah. you, had a, you had the GI Bill and the housing boom and the rise of the birth and rise of the true middle class of America in the 1950s. Right. I lived near Levittown, which was the first planned suburb in America. A lot of GIs got to go there. That's, that's when we took care of our veterans. Uh, I should mention that. And, you know, in England, rationing didn't end until the late 50s. And you're yeah. talking about how the draft ended. So they went through tough times. I mean, that's something that, you know, Probably a sticky point for more conservative people in this country, but you know, people act like, well, we won World War II. No, we didn't win World War II. We helped to win World War II. The Germans bombed the hell out of London and other parts like Liverpool, other parts of the country. They were, they were bombed to hell for like nine months during the Blitz. So they had a lot of rebuilding to do. They lived in far worse conditions than we did. So this guy is just, he, he has this opportunity, but he's just not happy as he doesn't, and he can't explain it necessarily either. He just has that itch and he's writing poetry. And so he just goes off and uh, just ends up getting a job sort of at a fair, being like a carny kind of guy. And he makes friends with the character played by Ringo Starr. And the two of them just develop his friend, Mike, who sh- the factors into the sequel, although Ringo Starr didn't show up for the sequel, you know, and it's just a slice of life story about these guys and betting all these different women and they go to shows and you can tell he wants to be this rock guy, but he's not really sure how he's going to do it. So the movie isn't necessarily about him being a rock star. It's what gives birth to the sequel in which he becomes a big rock yeah, star. Yeah, Stardust, the sequel is when so he becomes star- a rock star. Stardust is much more fun as a rock movie. Mm-hmm. Stardust has all the craziness. It's mostly shot in LA and in Spain and it's huge you know mansion like 
and Stardust is a great movie too, but that'll be the day is more of a dour kind of look at the 50s. It's not the American graffiti look at the 50s. And I talk about that in the commentary. This is really like what it was like for a lot of people. Yeah. But this is what gave birth that, that, that uns- the dissatisfaction, that, that itch to do something different, to be different when everyone else was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. It is. I mean, David Essex is quite good, and Ringo Starr is actually quite good too. He's very natural, and he's not like the Ringo you would expect from the Beatles. Um, although what's funny is this is the year that Ringo's solo career really broke. Yeah, photographs and and, uh, uh, and um, uh, it don't come easy. Both come out. Uh, yeah, and he already had a couple of kind of popular yeah. songs before that. Yeah, and it's funny. I just did a commentary for this movie, Buried Alive, which is Frank Darabont's first movie before Shawshank Redemption. And Hoyt Axton is in it. And Hoyt Axton co-wrote the No-No song, which comes out, oh, in, 19, yeah. comes out in Good Night Vienna right. uh, in 74. And that's a funny song about not wanting to do drinking and, and, and drugs anymore, which is funny because at that point, <laughs> Ringo Starr was Boy. an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. And Hoyt Axton evidently had a lot of vices too, even on the movie that I was doing the commentary for. But this is a fun movie. I didn't, I didn't you know, again, I don't always know a ton about these movies when I get them. I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of 80s commentaries for things like Secret of My Success, which I know, or Gotcha. But I, I took it on as a challenge. And I mean, David Essex is a really interesting guy. Yes, he had a lot of ballads and a lot of pop songs that the ladies still love. They still go to see him, evidently. But he did more progressive kinds of stuff. And even Rock On, which Def Leppard has been covering for years and still performs live, is a weird song. Got a lot of echo on it. It doesn't have a standard backbeat. It's kind of got this herky-jerky, quirky groove to it. You know, and even the song Stardust is kind of a not an upbeat kind of song. Like, he was an interesting character. He did a lot of stuff. A guy that was a quote-unquote teen idol did a lot of really diverse material mm-hmm. and really challenged himself, actually. Mm-hmm. And I respect that about him, you know? And not everything is on Spotify either, which bums me out. Yeah, that, that, that sucks, definitely. Uh, I'm sure that find won't be YouTube. permanent. You can go on, you, so, go, you yeah, find on YouTube. Yeah, you know, you yeah. just can't put it on your playlist. So, you know, you mentioned American Graffiti uh, because, you know, that's kind of, yeah. you know, the American version of uh, of this story. And, and, yeah, yeah. and the parallels are, are you know, are obvious. I mean, you, as soon as you, you turn it on, and I think they both came out in the same year, 1973. Uh, yeah, and, and, and American Graffiti really is about, takes place around 1962, which is at the very end of the 50s. I'm always of the belief that every decade culturally or pop culturally starts about two years in. So the 80s to me, even though, yes, like, look, Gary Newman's Cars is considered a big 80s. It came out in 19, I didn't even realize until recently, it came out in 1979. No, you know, I, I, I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday that, um, actually with my my writer, uh, uh, Richard uh, Evans, who, you know, we, we we do the Rock and Roll Archaeology uh, podcast. Yeah. And, you know, we were looking, we're, we're, we're at the end of the 60s, we're finishing up this last episode, which which kills off the 60s. And yeah, we, we have always said, you know, boy, you know, in in uh, if you look at our episode four change of the guard uh which is you know the the the, that that starts in about 62 63 so you can say yeah yeah, the the 60s as we know it don't begin until 63 and and to be honest with you february 9th 1964 is boom that's the to me that if if you want to point a finger it's you know it's either you know the, the the death of jfk or more importantly culturally um you know the 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 beatles come to america and play on ed sullivan and um yeah and that's that separate so that's two three you know maybe even up to four years before we get into what is classically known as the 60s um with the 70s i think it's the same sort of thing it's about two or three years before you start to see that but interesting with the 80s it does begin two years prior in about 77 78 79 yeah. you get things like uh, elvis costello uh you know the beginnings of new wave 
that then sure. move into the to the eighties, and that's that's kind of a, a different sort of thing. Whereas the nineties, again, that shows up almost on time, nineteen ninety one with Nirvana. Uh, but even and, then, that's like the end of ninety one when that really. Yeah, hits. I was working yeah, music yeah, retail almost too. It still, yeah, it still yeah. took like because I remember it, that summer Operation Rock and Roll, which is Alice Cooper, Judas Priest, Dangerous Toys. That tour tanked. Yeah, and they actually had to cancel most of the dates for that. And that's when Alice, I mean, a lot of the grunge stuff like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden was just metal. It was just metal tuned differently. Yeah. yeah. It was a little more dour. Yeah. Um, but the 80s, even the 80s, like, you, uh, because I really got into music with MTV in 82, about a, we got cable TV that summer. So a year after MTV had kicked in, that's when I discovered a lot of music. And I feel like the 80s, as we know, it probably really still kicked off in 81, 82. And then even then the shift I think the 80s possibly has the most radical shift of any decade because it really goes from like kind of slightly grittier, no frills stuff to suddenly overproduced, ultra glossy, digital kind of stuff. My girlfriend Susan argues that it was really the late 80s when things started to go downhill in rock and roll. I've always argued it was the 90s, but then I started listening to more late 80s stuff and I'm like, yeah, I think she's right. Like even Rush with Hold Your Fire, which is a good album. Those guitars are so glossy. It almost, it's almost, they're almost as brittle as like, like a, a thin sheet of glass. Like you almost feel like the guitar. I mean, Alex is a great guitar player, but there's something about the way that album is produced. It's not as full. And then, and then on the other end, you had those drums that sounded like cannons, thanks to the production on the Bon Jovi record and, and other things, or I think it was like booming. But then other bands, it got really weird. I don't know. There was something about that whole era where it didn't feel as real by the late 80s. Mm. The, or I, I feel like the first half of the 80s produced some of the best pop and rock music ever. Um, and then the latter half, you're like, eh, not so much. Like there's some good stuff, but you really felt the digital influence. And oh, I know, yeah. like Foo, Foo well, Fighters. Technologically, there's, there's a huge technological. And it affected the music. The digital. Yeah. The, the I mean, you had great digital. albums, but it yeah. affected the music. So you, you can't separate the two out anymore. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, yes. Yeah, so anyway, I, I were but yeah, off the whole let's, thing. Let's, that. let's get back to the 1950s uh, or yeah, yeah. 1973, if you want to look at it that way. So you 1958 know, I, circa 1973. Yeah. Yeah. Circa, yeah. And, and that is, uh, like you said, uh, uh, I think where, 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 where we started this uh, digression was that, uh, you know, American Graffiti is, is set in 1962 at the end of the yeah. classic, uh, the original rock and roll period, uh, whereas That'll Be the Day is set in 1958, certainly still in the midst of the, the original rock and roll, roll period. But, he, but even then, like when he goes with his, he has his, his childhood friend who takes him to the jazz club, and I make the point that, you know, rock and jazz both swung, but yeah. in different kinds of ways. But his friend is like, well, rock and roll is a fad because, you know, Billy Fury, who was a notable figure in the late 50s, early 60s, British rock music. Yeah, in, like in the British, British yeah. Elvis. Yeah. Um, he, you know, they're, they're singing Long Live Rock by The Who and they, The Who hadn't recorded it yet, I don't think. I think they actually, I think they, or they'd, they may have recorded written, it. They, but they, they, no, they recorded it, but they hadn't, hadn't, they hadn't, hadn't released, released it. it. Yeah. They didn't, hadn't, they actually hadn't performed it until 74. They yeah. Go on and they hadn't even, and it didn't come out in Odds and Sods until the end of 74, like yeah. October. So, it's it's funny that it seems a bit anachronistic, like they're talking about rocks and people thinking rock being dead. But then for a lot of people in England, it probably was. It wasn't. They didn't think it was going to have longevity. This is the, the movie that sets up the kind of the character. Oh, I, I don't think men. that's just England. I think uh, yeah. I think the establishment thought, "Whoa, yeah. we dodged a bullet by uh, well, Elvis going off to to join the army." So there, Chuck, oh, there, Chuck there's Barry's a key figure in jail. J uh, Jerry yeah. Lee is discredited. Um, uh, Little Richards is back in the priesthood, and because you know that that original and the day of the, the, day of the music, the day of the music and of course, died. Yeah, yeah, Buddy Holly, and Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Big Bopper. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I think, and then this this sort of chronicles what it could be the everyman experience, or more, almost like the everyman rocker that's going to emerge in the early '60s. 
uh, you know, we're going to have, you know, you're going to have Jeff Slate coming on. We're going to talk about our commentary for Gogomania, aka yeah. Pop Gear. Yeah, which is you know, what comes that, after. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and that actually chronicles 1964. Yeah. Or, yeah 64, 63, 64. Yeah. Right before 1965, when everything, there's a cataclysmic shift and where everything gets heavier and harder and edgier. So it's amazing you have these little pockets in there of how things change. Mm. But yeah, I mean, for some people, rock and roll probably was dying and then it needed a kick, kick in the butt. And funnily enough, it really came from the Brits. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they brought it, it back to us. Yeah, thank God. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be talking today, put it that way. Well, we would be talking about something. Else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny is I remember a quote I always remember from Rob Halford, which is he said, well, America, America may have invented rock and roll, but Britain invented heavy metal. And I'm like, that's that's very true. People can talk about Steppenwolf and stuff like that. But really, Birmingham, England is the birthplace yeah, yeah, yeah. of heavy Black metal. Sabbath, 19, yeah. 19, this really is this really is the 50th anniversary of heavy metal. And people really aren't talking about it. I mean, Uriah Heap, Black Sabbath, there's a lot of stuff that came out in 1970 that really pushed things forward in a radical way. Oh, yeah. And here, I mean, this guy is just going to shows. There's, a, there's so many songs, like classic songs on this soundtrack from like Jerry Lee Lewis and, and Del Shannon and, and Dion, Richie Valens. Uh, yeah. I can't remember a lot of them because I've, I, I remember the songs, but because I watched this and had to do the commentary after a while, I kept watching it over and over without music, uh-huh. you know, because I'm rehearsing and I'm picking out spots. It takes a lot of time to put a commentary together. It's not as simple as people think. Um, so I have to go back and really listen just for the music because I know that if you... You know, some some movies will have the commentary. I know that um, Hollywoodland did that. I did a, a, a commentary for that. And the director in the original commentary, he had a ton of songs from that period in the movie when George Reeves was alive. And like he, the songs are all comments on what's happening in the movie. Yeah. You know, but I'm sure there's some of that here and that'll be the day, but I didn't have enough time. As you can tell, I literally talked through the entire thing with barely you, a breath. You, it was, ch- let us say it's chalk completely full of information <laughs> and it all needed to get out. And uh, so you deliver it in a rapid fire way. Um, Hopefully you understood it all. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, since you, since you brought it up, you know, and again, we're, we're, we're it's, it's good to compare and contrast uh, this film with American graffiti. So who do you think had the better soundtrack? Because they're similar in nature, but they use music very differently. It's a good question, actually. I'm trying to remember all the songs now in American Graffiti, too. I mean, American Graffiti, I think, again, it's the different tones to the film. Yeah. I mean, this, and I think music, a lot of the music in here is is more in the background. Yeah, it's, it's Mar- like it's just playing uh, on the carnival. Or, you know, you, you know, there's Billy Fury actually performing a piece of it in, uh, in you know. In well, that's the difference here. Yeah. There are certain sequences here where the music is prominent in performance, whereas yeah. in American Graffiti, I think it's, it's not more prominent in the soundtrack. Yeah, it's strictly you soundtrack. Know? There, There is no musicians which is great. in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is great. They're both great for different reasons. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Yeah, because, you know, I... Yeah, you know, because they are radically different. And that's what makes this movie different for a lot of people. It'll be interesting to see how many people, younger people pick up on it. Because American Graffiti also had a lot of different filmmaking techniques that Lucas was using. It's not some split screen stuff, I think, from what I remember, and things yeah. like that, that are not not present in this film. This film is much more classically made in a lot of ways, I guess. Um, and, and it was a low budget film and they had to just, they had to do what they, they were able to do. I think what's fun about this movie is to And let's to say low budget in the UK is uh, even more low budget than a low budget yeah. movie in the United and States. And they did a great job with this film. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Keith Moon is in it and he's got the missing teeth, you know, that they would talk about the fam- infamous holiday in incident, which they talk about. That was a few years earlier though. So yeah. I'm wondering if he had like a bridge and you just took it out. Yeah, I'm sure that's just, what it was. You know, just to make him look a little rougher. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Billy Fury being in there is important. I mean, Jack Bruce is actually in the band, but you really would have to, 
you're gonna blink and you miss him. You have to just stare. I could, okay. yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't find him. Yeah, supposedly, I, he's, supposedly he's in there. He's yeah, like in the, yeah. and uh, you have, um, yeah, there's, you know, and and obviously Ringo and David Essex, and it's 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 cool to just, it's a different, it is different, and I, I don't know that it necessarily distracts either because it's not like Ringo's playing a star. He's playing a very, he's a very just typical guy. You know, same thing with David Essex. I mean, you know, you know, it's David Essex, you know, it's Ringo Starr, but they're not playing people that are larger than life. They're playing people that are just like everybody else, really. And and maybe because they came from those roots, both yeah. came from working class roots that I think Ringo was the most blue collar of all the Beatles. Oh, yeah. He, David he, Essex he, yeah. Was, was, I think, was a dock worker. So like you mm-hmm. basically have these guys that, you know, understand that life and they mm-hmm. can bring it right into the movie. Um, and yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, what there, there there are some anachronisms in in this film um yeah. you know uh, uh you know ringo's earring uh billy billy fury's glam outfit which really seemed i i like well yeah it looks like a bowie outfit from 73 74 uh yeah, i don't yeah. know if you would see that in the the, the time frame of 1958 um were there more are there more anachronisms yeah or ringo has the star in his ear and he does he got the tattoo on his butt yeah yeah you know yeah. i'm sure the latest well, happy to see. Yeah, yeah which is possible you know yeah, that, I mean, that one but, that one's possible but, uh, but by the same token though i mean well i mean that's the thing i mean i know that um so this is interesting so i went to a tattoo convention in berlin in 2001 i was actually going to interview a heavy metal band in in, in western part of germany I went over there so i covered this tattoo convention for tattoo savage think and uh magazine it was interesting to all the different people that were so i met this guy named herbert hoffman who actually passed away 10 years ago and he was a tattoo artist in germany now what's interesting is that you know the beatles spent time in hamburg and that was that's a that's a that's a that's a naval town port town right and so after world war ii you know, tattoos had been no, were not popular in Germany, and they weren't really allowed because of all what had happened with the prisoners in the Holocaust having their numbers tattooed onto their onto their skin, so the, their arms. So basically, uh, it would took it took until like the early fifties, I think, for tattoos to come back in Germany, and that was one of the main. He, I think, he did tattoo work up there, and so that it would been in, it, you could have imagined if in real life Ringo would have gone and maybe gotten a tattoo on his sure. head up there. Sure. Uh, I don't know if this guy would have. Um, but you know, yeah, there are little things like that. I'm trying to think. I mean, again, like the long live rock thing. It's like, it, and yeah, it is, I mean, that is a very '50s kind of tune, though. So it was very clever that they did it as a '50s style number. And when yeah. the Who do it, you're like, yeah, it's kind of like Chuck Berry. Like, you know, you kind of get the, you get that vibe off did, of it. Did you find out how that song kind of uh, was presented? I, I asked Ray about that, and and I wasn't really. I, I would assume it had to come from Keith. Well, I think, well, Keith Moon was actually involved in some of the music supervision. So I think that's the key thing. They must have had the song and said, hey, why don't we use it? There's no other way it would have come in. Yeah. How, how could they have known about the song existing? Yeah. yeah. So Keith Moon, I think, was cool that he was involved in both movies, playing Keith Moon, basically. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> let's, let's be honest here. Uh, he does that big kind of solo to irritate Billy Fury's character at one point because he's tired of, of playing second or third fiddle to this guy. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's great. I just, I, I, the first time I watched it, I didn't really think about it. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I know that song. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to think of other anachronisms. I mean, a lot of it, I think a lot of it, I mean, one of the jacket that Ringo Starr is wearing is, it was taken from a store, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. Oh, were actually yeah, ran. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah, you're always going to get that. I think people try to be a bit more period conscious these days than they were back then. But I don't, in a way, maybe maybe they didn't care so much because they wanted to kind of tie it into a bit to the 70s to the 50s revival. Because this is what happens. Like, 
the reason I like this, one of the reasons I like to show Stranger Things a lot is it really gets the 80s right. It's oh, not it just simply the fact that it takes place in the 80s and it's got a cool 80s kind of soundtrack. No, it's got the whole the, cultural zeitgeist. The name brands are in there, but yeah. no one has huge hair. Like in my high school, we had a, we had a couple of the new wave kids or some of us metal guys, but nobody had hair that ex- looked like they they, they, they they woken up and they had a perm. They put on, the perm exploded or something that day. Like, but it, you did have that in certain places in the country, but this is middle America. So there's still a few, they're usually towns. It's not LA or New York, right. Yeah, they're still, even with the internet, people are still a few years behind. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. You're not, you're not surrounded by people who are worried about being quote unquote hip and current. So you, they get those period details right, whereas like a lot of 80s movies don't, a lot of the 80s, uh, sort of the new quote unquote retro 80s movies overdo it. The Wedding Singer sort of got it, the balance just about right. It didn't go completely over the top, you know, but then some of the movies that came later on, it's like everything, they had the big hair and the loud colors and the crazy fashion, like not everybody looked like that, man. You know, I look at pictures of myself from the 80s, I didn't look cool, you know, I mean, come on. So this movie, yeah, I mean, they did try to get that. It's, it's, this is probably a tricky sell back then because it's not an upbeat story. It doesn't necessarily really have an upbeat. It's sort of, no, it's sort of upbeat it's, ending, but upbeat, but not because of the decision he's leaves, making. It, it, there's, there's actually, there's a couple yeah. of things in this movie that are kind of weird uh, and, and, and unusual storytelling or maybe very un-American cinema. Yeah. Uh, you know, like what happens to Ringo's Mike character? He gets beat up, he gets sent uh, to the hospital and we never see him again. Well, in the sequel, he, the beginning of the sequel, he goes back and Mike is played by Adam Faith. Well, that doesn't um, Who was a British teen idol <laughs> uh, in the 60s. So they brought in another person that people in the 60s would know. Um, and it is a little weird, but I think Ringo, from what I understand, Ringo didn't really want to, I, I was chatting with Ray Connolly about, I think Ringo just didn't want to do that. And the Beatles had broken up. Mm. I don't think he really wanted to relive that kind of experience of all Again, this stuff. Yeah. Because the, there, there are more Beatles references in Stardust than there are in this movie. People seem to think this is fashioned after Lennon, the Beatles, it's not. And in that movie, it really is. There's, I mean, he, I mean, Ray Connolly is working from a rich rock and roll history at that point. So he brings in references to a lot of things, but there's a lot more of the Beatles in Stardust. So it is, it is a little odd. You have to get past that in order to enjoy it. Um, Stardust is a much faster paced film. It's much more upbeat. It's more colorful. It does have a very dark, it takes a very dark turn. It's not, you know, it takes a darker turn than this movie does, but it's still fascinating. I won't tell you what happens. It has one of the best ending shots to a movie I've ever seen just because of what it says. And I won't say what it is, but go, I have a, I have a copy. A friend of mine actually got a copy somewhere. I have it on disc. So I was able to watch it because it's not available anywhere. Right. But if you can, if you I'll make a copy for you, because you, it's, it's really interesting. And um, it really chronicles when he becomes a star and mm-hmm. it does actually, his his girlfriend, who he his wife, who he left with the kid, comes back into the movie for a short while in Stardust, and there's uh, repercussions of the actions that he, the decisions he made in the first movie, come back, and dealing with this increasing isolation and the problems, like he's successful in doing all these things, but he's not that happy, and. He, you know, my problem with a lot of rock movies is that they don't always, I mean, that'll be the day is realistic and to a certain extent. I have a big problem with movies that don't really want to show, like if you watch Light of Day with Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett, that's a pretty realistic movie because it's showing you a struggling rock band. And, and one of the first things you ever, things, scenes you see them in, they're playing to a bar in the middle of the afternoon to three people. That's reality. Yep. That's what happens. I know it well. Yes, <laughs> that is the reality. And like, I have a, a friend of mine and I, my friend, Steven Montani, my best friend, we wrote a, a script like 10 years ago, which really have to revisit a rock show. We wanted to show 
we want to do a rock show about a, a, what it really is like to be a band, like a real band. And I, we did a couple of readings in New York and Boston. And one of my friends was like, yeah, that's what it was like to be in a punk band for me many, many years ago. All of this kind of BS. And, you know, American movies particularly love to romanticize rockers and it doesn't work. They usually don't get it right. Like almost famous works yeah. because Cameron Crowe was a real life rock journalist. He was there. He, yeah. He experienced yeah. it at a time that you cannot do what he did, which is to get access to people almost by your charm. Hmm. These days you have to go through so many handlers and like, you know, for my podcast, I'm lucky I have direct contacts either with certain publicists who will help me out or the musicians themselves. But that's because I've been doing this 25 years. I can't imagine being a young kid having that trying to knock on a door. Right. It's not going to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of the rock experience isn't captured. Again, we should point out that'll be the day isn't so much a rock movie, but it does show you again, these bands that were mostly doing covers, you know, that were just playing local dance halls because that's what kids needed. That was their escape. Yeah, that's you know it was a very different from the the dull now. the dull mundane life of uh, of yeah. uh, of black and white Britain uh, because of the the war as we we talked about the rationing going way beyond uh, what we had to deal with um, yeah. and uh, yeah so so the tone of it is definitely you know anti American graffiti there there's not a lot of of, of romanticism uh, in it uh, and in fact there's there's even a scene that um, is difficult to uh, watch today because of how it's treated in the film. And that's the rape scene. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was watching the commentary again. I'm like, Oh yeah, I didn't really talk too much about that, you know, cause it just, again, I had so much I wanted to talk about. And then that could have opened a whole other can of worms. I feel bad in retrospect, but there's a lot of stuff in the, this is the problem with doing these commentaries is you, it is, you know, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's it's. And of course that's something where he, you already see him becoming, I do mention another point in the jerk, like he's writing on the back of this one woman and he basically writes, Jim McLean was here in September something, 1959. He puts a 15 in a circle around it. He's just treating her as a scoreboard and she can't see it because it's on her back. And I don't know if she looks in the mirror later and then throws something at him or punches him, but you know, he's turning into a prick. Yeah. And, uh, and that's part of the problem. It's a hard part for some people to watch this movie because he's not the most likable guy. He seems to be okay at the beginning. And then he turns into this jerk. Um, and uh you know, not even yeah, because no, no, because you know, in that rape scene, I mean, it just it occurs. Um, she takes it's very the, quick. She takes the blame, uh, and he walks away, and 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 it's over. Other than Ringo uh, as Mike gives him a little bit of shit when he kind of figures it out because he he, he didn't completely know he doesn't know exactly what no, happened but he, no. he shouldn't he just knows that, that and young. a young girl right 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 yeah right right, right. so no, you're right and it's it's but you know again it's still true to life it's very it's realistic so I mean, at the of the times yeah yeah i mean yeah. i mean they have the, they're basically at this holiday park and they have to base rent cottages so they can go and sleep with someone i mean the the, the sex scene that he has the first time you know he basically finishes very quickly because he's not used to having sex and yeah. she's disappointed. And he's with this really hot, this beautiful woman oh, who's, yeah. you know, and intelligent. And he, she's like, is that the way it's going to be? And, and that's what they did. I mean, this is the funny thing about the fifties and where Americans, we romanticized the fifties as the good old days. It really wasn't the good old days. I mean, it was, it was the time of McCarthyism. There's a lot of racism, a lot of sexism, misogyny, homophobia. Yes. It was a simpler time, but you know, you your parents would get, would give you holy hell if you went off and had premarital sex, for example. A lot of your parents would kill you, probably, oh, right? Yeah. So these kids have to sneak around and have two hours somewhere, which is not romantic. It's it's lit very nicely, but you sort of, you understand that this is what. And American films don't always acknowledge stuff like that. It's like oh, it was, yeah, there's the back seat of the car and whatever else. But mm -hmm. even then, it's almost kind of romanticized a little more. This film doesn't do that. It's like this is it, man. You're you're gonna dance. You're gonna you know. 
have yep. sex for an, yep. you fuck yep. for an hour and then that's it nothing else and we don't we don't like that for some reason we we like to we like to romanticize our past which is fine but it's nice to see a film that's like this is it this is how crappy it was and this is probably what gave rise to a lot of people wanting to be artists but it also makes you think and this is in retrospect, and we'll talk about this with we when we get to the the pop gear thing with Jimmy Savile. Oh, that there are a lot of unsavory, yes. uh, yeah, a little <laughs> a lot of unsavory characters in rock and roll, yeah. and yeah. that's the problem that rock and roll has now. Um, that we're we're coming to a reckoning, and then do you stop listening to certain artists because you've discovered all these terrible things that they did? Um, you know, well, yeah, I, you know, Michael Jackson is obviously the 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 big yeah. poster child right now to look at. R. Kelly, uh, you know, many 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 people to look at like that, you know. But uh, and and while that's vile behavior and they um, should be chastised or worse for it, um, the oh, reality yeah. is is that it's it's hard to separate the art from the artist. You know, when when I get into these arguments, I I always end with hey look Car caravaggio's my favorite painter and he killed people with swords so you know what are, what are you gonna do you know well, that, um, well, well, well this is this is the, well i think now what it is is it going forward in the future people aren't going to be able to get away with that kind of stuff and, 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 that's, and, that and rightfully, and rightfully so yeah. and rightfully so yes. the problem the problem that classic rock and roll has however is you know it's like when dave they interviewing dave Grohl on vh1 well it's, it was just slang for fucking right i'm like yeah, well, yeah i mean rock and roll uh, there's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie where they're these carny workers and they're only doing it to scam on chicks and make a little extra cash. Yeah. And then, but then Ringo Starr's character has an unceremonious departure because he gets the crap beaten out of him because he's getting away with too much. Yeah. And people catch on to it, which is also realistic, you know? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I look at, I mean, even, even like Jimmy Page when he had his girlfriend, underage girlfriend, who was kind of sequestered for a couple of years, allegedly, you know, I mean, there's stuff like that you hear about and, and, it is. It's tricky, and I. I also have a problem with cancel culture because you can't just eliminate anything that seems unsavory in one aspect or another. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I like well, Gone with the Wind. There's issues, but now they're going to show it, and they're going to have discussion about that film, which is perfectly fine. Yeah, I, I've I, I've never really cared that much about that movie, but I might be heresy to some people. <sighs> We're going to find out a lot more things about people later on and, the, and Michael Jackson. And then again, it's like, it's like you look at uh, Kevin Spacey, you know, and his behavior, Harvey Weinstein. I can't, with the case of, and I've discussed this in commentaries before with Harvey Weinstein. I, I'm not going to ban You can't, you can't ban the movie films he produced because there are a lot of people that knew about it, but there are some people that didn't, or they found out later. Yeah. But are you going to dismiss their film? Are you going to dismiss the early Steven Soderbergh work and say, well, we can't, we can't watch this now. I get, I, I think what's going to happen is it's a pendulum swinging kind of a thing. There's going to be stuff that's going to disappear simply because of attrition. Like, does anybody really watch the Porky's movies anymore? Eh, probably not. Do we really need to? No. Uh, and that, that was, that was sort of a, an, un, an unglamorous and yet, well, it glamorizes teen sex. So it's like a look at the fifties and oh, how wasn't that fun? All this crazy stuff. And you look, you think of all the misogyny inherent in those oh, kind of wow. films yeah. later. Yeah. So no one's going to watch that. I think a lot of this stuff will disappear because of attrition. Mm. And, 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 and just to try to cancel it and blot it out of your mind, like, oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world. Well, there's certain things, yes, we should. And there's still discussion today about how you have all these rape scenes in TV shows and films. Like, why do you need to have this? There's a lot of gratuitous stuff and it should be called out. Um, in this movie, I, I don't think it's glamorizing it at all. I mean, this movie, I think you with the, you you start to really it, it puts you in a bit of a moral quandary by the end of it. It does. Uh, people it, didn't it, like, yeah. honestly. Yeah, yeah. Which is again to go back. It's just you know the it's the polar opposite tone that you get from American graffiti, which is talking about a you know the same type type of era. But you know, to your point, the Americans glamorized it because we were in a glamorized mythological world anyway, and the Brits did the exact opposite because that was the world that they actually lived in. Uh, 
The thing I joke about now is I feel like a lot of Republicans want to take us back to the 50s. It's a cross between Father Knows Best and Gunsmoke that like never existed. Yeah. It just, it's, it's, it's all in our minds. And, it's, you know, yeah. and I think, again, I don't mind glamorizing. Look, I love a lot of 80s stuff. At the same time, underneath the, a lot of that pop culture, some oh, pretty nasty things. Yeah. And that was the greed is good decade, Gordon yeah. Gecko. Yeah. So we have to the only way you can really truly understand is having having lived through it. But mm -hmm. I, I still love the fact that there are young people that will probably be enamored with, you know, look at the swing, the swing scene that came out in the late nineties. Brian Setzer has I guess even bigger than I think he was with Stray Cats. Yes. And then he, he launches unintentionally a massive swing revival, mm -hmm. which has continued to this day. Maybe it's not on the charts the same way it was, but my brother does swing dancing, just swing dancing all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. I was in a Montreal metal club. And every time I would go there in Montreal jazz fest, the first year it was closed. Second year was a fetish night third year was a swing night and we're like fine we'll just go there on the swing night just so people are dancing with these pillars with skulls on them and like it's completely incongruous and then it closed so i'm glad I, at least i went to, to at that point but, so what uh, do so you what do you think of the musicians performances as actors uh you know uh you got ringo uh you've got uh, moon the loon and you got billy <laughs> fury all with speaking parts well, I mean, obviously, I think Essex and Star, the, the David yeah. Essex and Ringo Star, are really good. Billy Fury is, is all right. I mean, he's, he's playing probably just playing Billy Fury, but he does, you know, he has moments where he, uh, they don't have a lot of, uh, you know, there's one moment I think where Keith Moon is giving a Moon's giving him a hard time, and he kind of gets put off and whatever, and that that's okay. Moon actually, he's fine, but he's playing himself. But he's at least he's natural on camera. You don't get the sense that he's um, anybody else than who he is. Like it didn't feel overdone. There's some people that can get on camera like, oh, yeah, you know, they don't work. Um, I think it probably, and I wonder if, you know, especially Ringo had been on camera before. This is David Essex. But David Essex oh, had, David yeah, Essex he, had been well, in he Godspell. Done, he done the, Essex had been the, in Godspell. Yeah, yeah. And Ringo had done Magic Christian uh, with Peter Which is Zellers. a crazy, we're yeah. talking about a cynical movie. That's yeah. a really interesting movie. <laughs> I watched that. I hadn't seen it. And I watched it before. I, and I was like, wow, this is really trippy. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I think, I don't know. I, did you enjoy it? I mean, did you enjoy those performances? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know Ringo was very interested in trying to become an actor, uh, after yeah. the Beatles. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's moving his way up to his great, uh, uh, solo, you know, his starring, uh, performance in Caveman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he got a wife. Out I say of it. that with tongue in cheek, but yes, he got a great wife out of it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, Ringo does a, a good job. I don't, I don't think it's a big stretch, what have you. Uh, yes. With, with, with but Keith, he's natural though. Yeah. Yeah. He's natural. Uh, it, and, and he, you know, he fits the Teddy boy sort of, uh, feel a little bit, um, uh, uh out there. Um, uh, I think Ring uh, 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 Moon is just Moon to your point, and he's only there for a short little tiny. Uh, it works piece. in that. He's yeah, more, he's more. He's more in the sequel though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I haven't seen Stardust. Yeah, so you have to see it. Uh, and then, and then you know, but to me, seeing Billy Fury and and seeing just the charisma just jump yeah. off the screen, I was like, oh, okay. Now I kind of get why this guy was the quote unquote uh, you know British Elvis. Uh, you know, back back in the day, it's, it's he sad he died. Real, you know, he died really young. I think he was only like forty-two. Or he had a heart attack. Yeah, he, well, he had a he had a he uh, had a congenital heart issue. Which, yeah, uh, which is sad. And he actually, I think, he didn't record his parts for this movie with the band. He did it separately. Supposedly, he didn't feel he had the confidence because at that point in his thirties, he was considered old for a rock guy. Oh, think yes. Of it, think of it now as what's considered <laughs> old for a rock guy. Yeah. I mean, Dave Grohl isn't considered old yet, I don't think, for people, and he's in his fifties. But like. Yeah. 
I look at it, it's very, very strange that the, I mean, J.J. French from Twisted Sister said this to me many, many years ago. I mean, I've interviewed those guys a lot over the years. And he said, you know, when we started out in Twisted, it's like the Beatles recorded for eight years. So by the time they finally get a record contract after starming, I mean, that Twisted got a record contract seven years after they started. So like, yeah, they, they, they were like kind of big in, a, in the tri-state area. Yeah. And then, but to them, imagine how they couldn't felt. get out of I mean, that. Yeah. They, they could, how frustrated they felt and not mm-hmm. getting a record deal. And a lot of lesser, less talented bands were getting them. I mean, they yeah. also had to look that put a lot of people off because it was glam, but it was not attractive glam. It was purposely like, you know, <laughs> it's called Twisted Sister. I mean, that was the whole idea. And Dee Snyder loved to be confrontational. That was part of the, the charm yeah. uh, there. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, and the Beatles had this short but amazing career. And then you see these other bands, like they look at that and that's, that was the, that was the yardstick that you measured it by. Yeah. But then think about it. I mean, I, you know, Judas Priest took eight albums to go platinum. I'll do it against the P. Um, yeah. Judas Priest took eight albums to go platinum. And then like, I didn't realize, I didn't realize until a few years ago, Ario Speedwagon, High Infidelity. I mean, that was actually their ninth record. Took them like nine, I think nine albums to get a, uh, even a platinum record. They were, it's, they had, they had a couple of hits before then, but that was the, yeah, really roll with the changes. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you can tune a piano, can't tune a fish. That, that was, uh, uh, you know, several years before they, well, and they shifted directions uh, and became very pop, uh, you know, yeah. with those guys. So, you know, they, they worked it uh, and, and all of that. So, um, what other Easter eggs should uh, the diggers look at, uh, look for while watching the, the movie? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I mean, I was, I was listening to my commentary again because it'd been a few months. I'm like, oh, yeah, I talked yeah. about that, didn't I? I'm trying to think of other stuff in there. I mean, you know, this is, this is shot on the Isle of Wight. So that's got its own history there with the festival. Yep. So you're going to see what that area really was like. Um, and they picked that because it still represented that uh, 50s uh, UK look uh, from what I what I read. I mean, honestly, no, actually, like, I, I think you said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, this is the thing. Honestly, I'm trying to think it's like really here I'm hawking my own commentary, but really I tried to pack my commentary through as much trivia as like I could go down little rabbit holes about all the different things. I actually would almost uh, I'm trying to think of like different stuff that was in here because I was watching it again. And it's interesting to watch it without sound just to watch the performances. Um, look at a lot of the posters in the background. You know, I think as uh, a Dallas Boys, I think is one of the groups that's on there and they were a big boy band. It's like on the poster. Oh, really? Okay. In, in the background. Um, and uh, if you look, you'll occasionally see like a, yeah, you'll see like a, a flyer uh, for a group. You'll, you'll see like poster for a group somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they were formed in the, is it, I always say Leicester. It was like Leicester. I, I, the first name is always cracking Leicester. up when I'm trying to, Leicester. Yeah, Leicester. I mean, they were on TV quite a bit. But yeah, you know, you look for that, um, you know, listen, just listen to all the different songs that are in there. Um, you know, I try to, there was so much I crammed in there and it was like a study, cramming for an exam. And then afterwards, like, I'm like, I remember everything I just wrote down. It's amazing. But I think the best thing to do is to watch it. And then if you can try somewhere to see Stardust, I hope they put it out because Stardust actually really has a lot more references to a lot of things that rock fans will know. Because this one isn't so much of a rock movie as the, 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 the genesis of a rock star and like all the problems that he goes through. Um, to, to, well, so, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a, a smart kid um, who's unhappy with uh, life, has some uh, baggage, daddy issues, uh, and uh, and then you know is trying to find himself, and obviously the muse is the music. 
there is a there is a left-handed drummer in there, by the way. So just pay pay attention to that. There's a left because I was having this discussion online. Well, and the band's the ring- name is uh, is you know a, a, an amalgamation of uh, R- Rory Storm, which is you know where where Ringo. You know, yeah, but, but there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cover band in there with the drummer's a lefty near the uh-huh. end of the movie in the last 20 minutes of the film. Um, I forget that they didn't name all the bands that are in it. Um, at least not. In, I don't. I'm, I'm not oh, this, this is band, this is this was this, the good band that, that they were actually pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think they were the doing all this movie. cover yeah. actually, yeah. and he's yeah. and it's one of the Jim McLean's there near the end. I think that's when he's really thinking. Okay, I really this is what I want to do. Right. Like maybe there's not a huge crowd with a lot of women in the front. They're all smooning yeah, over they, the singer. Yeah, yeah. But the drummer's a lefty and playing a left-handed a lefty kit. So, you know, when Ringo started, he didn't really have that. Um, and a lot of, he, like a lot, part of the reason he has his signature style and it's so unique is because he was playing yeah. on a right-handed kit. So like come together, I was watching, I did some research, you know, I was watching him on one talk show discussing this, how he had to basically, he, he he's a lefty. So when he's doing a, a fill for that come together, it's, I used to play this with, with uh, some friends of mine. We used to jam in their basement for several years and come together was one of the things we did, but I would do that. Yeah, I would go down the toms. He did the reverse. He went from the floor to the mounted tom. Mm-hmm. But he had to slide, he would slide his hand, the left hand under his right hand to do that and then go back up. So he doesn't do things rapid fire in a lot of his drumming because he's playing in a kit that's the reverse yeah. of what would na- feel natural to him. Nowadays, of course, and he never adjusted for that later. It was like nowadays you do have some people that play left handed because I think they still. Not that many, though, I don't think. I've still. always said that is the secret sauce to the Beatles. The, the reason the Beatles, I mean, great. Hey, look, it, all four of them have a lot yeah. to do with Grant, you know, Paul McCartney, Lennon songs. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. the sonic quality of Ringo's playing, because to your point, he's left-handed, playing right-handed. And what he does yeah. is he leads with his left hand, which is not the natural way a drummer should. You lead with your, 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 you know, your dominant hand. Which is interesting hand. though, because like I'm a right-handed drummer and yet the left hand is what you play the snare on. Yeah. So you would think that actually you still have to work, you still have to work up the, the strength and the yeah. dexterity. Well, you still need all four limbs. The, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The snare rolls yeah. and like, obviously with the right, the high hat, you can do a lot with your yeah. right hand. But nobody, it, nobody plays the drums like Ringo. And yeah, well, he, he made, he made, a, he made a quote-unquote weakness his strength. Yes, and that's, and that's, it's like you know when, when, when people probably looked at McCartney just flipping over his bass. Mm. First, it was a guitar, then a bass. Like, was well, that the right way to do it? And it's yeah. like, well, that's the right way for me, so that's what I want to do. And that's, yeah. it's, it's simple stuff like that. Simple, just a simple change of perspective that that does it. It's almost like you. That's what the problem and. You know, we can, uh, you know, we're, uh, we'll probably end up discussing some of this stuff with the pop gear thing of, of you know, like certain bands in the, in the pop gear in a Go-Go Mania uh, movie were really interesting that didn't get quite as far as I think they should have. But then a lot of them were kind of pedestrian for the, uh, pedestrian yeah. even at the time. Yeah. It's just that's what they ended up having hits. Yeah. Um, that's the problem with rock and roll now. I feel like there's not enough of, it, it is it's a simple thing that can change the entire perspective. And we, we all have those aha moments in our life, right? Like, why didn't I think of doing that? Why didn't I organize my room this way? Really? All I had to do was think yeah, a completely different way than what I was doing. It took me five years to do this and I should have it's done it. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. You know, you mentioned Stardust, which is the sequel, um, which yeah. is not available uh, right now, but it's directed mm-hmm. by Michael Apted, who goes on to all kinds oh, of great it's things. It's very well directed by Michael Apted. It's, it's, it's and much you, more you have hit. seen the, the film, so you oh, yeah, know yeah. That, that, that this, this comes out. So it, it, it's well it, done. And Dave Edmonds is in it, by the way. And Dave, Ed, Dave oh. Edmonds wrote songs that are in it. There are original oh. songs written by Edmonds. And he's in the band in the sequel. 
So that's oh. actually interesting. Yeah. Is so there any plans of that? Uh, good question. Out? I should ask Kino. I don't know who yeah. has the right. So this, the reason that this is put out is because Kino had this whole deal. I think this is part of the, the whole thing with the, I don't know if it, this is a, it's a Studio Canal, but it might be part of the Universal catalog. Um, that, no, it isn't a Studio Canal, but there's a, a whole bunch of ones I've been doing lately are part of Universal. So they get these deals with various uh, distributors or you know, studios to do a whole bunch of their movies, which is what happened. And Stardust just might not. The problem with a lot of films, this is what happens, is that the rights change. And then somebody, somebody gets the rights to do something and then they languish mm -hmm. and people don't keep track of who had what or how long the deal was supposed to last or who the original rights owner was. And that stuff ends up, it's like, it's like materials and vaults just end up, somebody put it somewhere. I mean, it's frustrating because you know, I, there's like the mythical print of 2001 that's supposed to be out there with a few extra scenes that never shows up. We found it in a salt mine in Utah and then it never actually shows up. There are, there are things like that. I mean, on a side, the movie Nosferatu, when it came out in the early 20s. So Bram Stoker's, I think it's his, his widow, is his widow or his estate sued the filmmakers of Nosferatu because it was basically ripping off Dracula. Yeah. And so they had to destroy every single print of that movie. And it just turns out there may be one or two prints that were left, like some projectionist in Germany held on to it, whatever it was. The reason you don't see a pristine copy of that movie ever is because they're mostly, they were all destroyed. mostly destroyed. Wow. And so they found it somewhere and had to really do, I mean, Kino put that out. They had to do a lot of restoration work on it. Mm -hmm. And you think about all the other movies that don't even exist anymore in video. So I love the fact that Kino does this stuff. Stardust yeah. needs to come out because it is a really interesting movie. Um, it does capture a lot of the rock and roll experience of the time. And you watch this guy just disintegrate. Um, and it's got some uplifting moments, but it's got a lot. It's, it's a dark movie, but it's really good. So it's the wall before the wall. Yeah, kind of. Actually, it's a way of putting it. Uh, approximately, it doesn't quite have the psychedelic aspect of that. But when you see it, or the we'll fascism, we'll, we'll hopefully, yeah, we'll hopefully we'll have a discussion about that when that comes out. We, we yeah. should petition somebody because yeah. you know, I'll, I'll send it to you. I think you'll you'll get a kick yeah. out of it. Yeah, and and Ray Connolly wrote both films, so that yeah, yeah. Uh, and they that, did it pretty quickly. Did. They didn't expect yeah. this to be like no, a, it, it, was, it became hit a hit. And, yeah. In the UK. Now, now, when this came out in America, the thing I should point out is that this movie does not has the original. That'll be the which they originally was supposed to be the Buddy Holly version, but for rights reasons and probably money, they didn't. They went with a different version. Um, but they did put Rock on on the American version of this film. So the American version, and that's why with with Pop Gear they they chose Go Go Mania is the American title, but they keep the Pop Gear. Uh, logo at the beginning of the movie yeah. because uh, that's what a lot of people are going to recognize it as. But yeah, so the, the American version of this film actually does have rock on it, which actually wouldn't have been a good idea because it was kind of incongruous sonically. It's a, it's a song that references a lot of the 50s, but it does not sound like the 50s. Right. So it would have been, they, they did it because rock on became a hit. And so it's, it's funny that the year that this, I mean, in terms of Easter eggs, really, what it, it's the trivia, like the year that That'll Be the Day came out, David Essex became a star yeah. and Ringo Starr became a star in his own right. Yeah. In the sense that he wasn't just a Not Beatle a Beatle anymore. anymore. Now right, he was right. Ringo. Yeah. So it's funny how this all emerged and the Who obviously were still doing well. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting time. And there's some people that kind of criticize it. Yes. You know, it's the 50s has filtered through the 70s. I'm like, well, you know, it's not going to be perfect. Um, and I, I don't think period films, I mean, look at the sword and sandal epics of the 50s and 60s in Hollywood. Oh, my God, they're cheesy. I'm sorry, but like, I can't, I don't want to sit through a lot of that stuff. Even I should rewatch Spartacus because I love Kubrick, even though that wasn't originally a Kubrick film. But like, you look at it and you're like, some of the costuming, you're like, dude, they're too clean, first of all. And secondly, this, all these things look brand new. <laughs> yeah. They're brand new, you know. Well, I, I give a pass to Spartacus uh, and, um, uh, and Ben-Hur. Uh, but other than that- Well, yeah, great, great performances the, yeah. and great direction. But yeah. I still, 
I can understand why somebody younger looks at it and goes, oh, God, dude, really? <laughs> really? Do we have to sit? And oh, by the way, they're three and a half hours long. So uh, <laughs> and that'll be the day, you know, only 91 yeah, minutes. 91 minutes. Um, yeah. And it goes through quickly. And I think if people like it and they listen to the commentary, you know, they don't listen to the commentary and they want to just delve into the soundtrack, you do. I mean, I didn't know that much about Billy Fury either. Yet yeah. Morrissey, big yeah. Billy Fury fan, they put his picture on the cover of their last single. Um, Bernie Taupin wrote a song about him. Um, I found a group called Devilish Presley, where like a sort of a goth meets rockabilly. It's an interesting group. And they did a song about Billy Fury, I think called Billy Fury is Dead, um, about 12 years ago. And I became a fan of theirs after I discovered the song. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And Def Leppard obviously continued to perform rock on. So yeah. there's all these younger people that are singing a David Essex tune and probably don't even know that it's a David Essex tune. Mm. I'd love to interview him someday, actually. I think he, that guy's got to have stories. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. And, and there's and, a movie of his uh, Silver Dream, I think Silver Dream Racer that's on, I think I remember this, um, that's on Amazon Prime for free right now, where he plays a race car driver. Um, that's an, and, and kind of a tougher character. He gets into a brawl in that movie. He's a little hard, a hard bit of a hard sell, but you know, he was a good looking guy, you know, had a lot of charisma. Um, you know, bigger in the 70s and 80s, obviously, but then he, they did a musical based on one of his uh, uh, albums. And, you know, he started doing many years ago, started just touring again and playing in front of a few thousand people a night. The ladies still go crazy for certain songs because, you know, mm -hmm. he course. was an old fashioned romantic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But again, you and I are like the deeper cuts. You go into his deeper cuts. You're like, oh, I mean, he had a song called City Lights, which is a video. And you can't, again, I think it's on a greatest hits on Spotify, but the album is not on Spotify. And he's walking along and these four black guys jump him. And you're like, oh, here we go. Racist thing. And it turns out they're all his friends and they're all hanging out. And I'm like, did they do that on purpose? Like, like, you know, let's, let's reverse the stereotype here. You know, yeah. he's hanging out. All his whole crew is like, is, is you know, they're black, they're not white. And I thought that was a cool twist. Like that they did that on purpose, clearly. You know, he's walking along and they jump and it's like, hey guys, how you doing? You know, I, I don't know. It's different because I was, you know, one of the things that, that uh, a critic noted about the commentary for Pop Gear, Ogomania, is that Jeff and I have to sit there and go, how many black musicians were there at the time in England? Like not a rockers, lot. Not a lot. <laughs> you know, and in, and in America, though, they're the ones that started it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting well, and, and, and then they, they you know, the, the, a lot of those African-American artists uh, were, went to the UK and uh, and discovered that uh, not only were they you know their music liked but they also were just treated like people uh they didn't have to deal with the um uh you know the well, the the systemic racism uh that you know was found at home they well there, there is there is some race i mean like racism. i mean like what's interesting is how like i did a there's a movie called pool of london that came out in 1951 and uh it has the first interracial romance in British cinema history. And it's not a full on romance, it's an unrequited thing ultimately. But it's an interesting movie. But then I, there was some, that same director did it, Basil Dearden did a bunch of movies in the 50s dealing with like another film about a, a, a woman who's biracial who's murdered and she looks light skinned, but it takes us into the sort of underground world of a lot of, I, you can't even say African American clubs, that's the thing, like it's in England. So, yeah. uh, you know, I don't say it was like, you know, a lot of black clubs and, and they, they deal with the racism. And then another film dealt with these gay men who are being blackmailed. One of them commits suicide, and this police inspector who's not really prejudiced is, is like, He's trying to figure it out. There's some interesting stuff, but it wasn't until yeah, later on, I think they were, they, at least they addressed those issues earlier than American cinema did. I mean, here you have a film about a woman who's half black being murdered uh, and is being sympathetic to the, yeah. the victim. And, and the a police inspector is sympathetic, yeah. a police inspector is sympathetic to gay men, uh, an, an unrequited interracial romance that you really want to have happen. 
And then I was watching a tale of Hammer, episode of Hammer House of Horror from 1980. And one of the episodes is an interracial couple, black woman, white man. Nothing is said about the fact that they're in an interracial relationship. If that was on American television at the time, it would have been like a freaking after-school special. Yeah. By the way, it's okay for them to be together. Yeah. Yeah. And since they're and they're united because they're being terrorized by a spirit. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. This is but this is the thinking. And I look at America today and I'm like, wow. I mean, they have issues with racism over there too. A lot of this unfortunately is post 9 uh, yeah. kind of uh, stuff. But know. but England, it seems like let they me have they have their me. own sins. There's no two ways about I, that. I mean, let me let me, you know, let me I interviewed him three or four times and he was alive. And one of the, one of the, I think the first time I talked to him, he was surprised moving over because he lived a few blocks from the rainbow. Yeah. I got to go to the I, apartment once and see all the I got crazy to meet him Nazi several stuff. times. Uh, He's a character, out, right? And he was surprised. He was surprised at how racist. America was. He's like, really? You know, you guys, you haven't gotten over the interracial couple thing yet? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, whatever, but yeah. Well, it's a so fun movie, fun movie, fun commentary, but uh, it's time to bring uh, your partner in uh, commentary crime on with us yes. uh, for the next film. So uh, let's, uh, let's grab uh, Mr. Jeff Slate here. Huh? Woohoo. Hey, welcome to our chat, uh, Jeff Slate. And welcome back to Deeper Digs, uh, another returning guest. Uh, good to be here yet again. Excellent. Yet again, yet again. So, uh, you know, we're going to continue our discussion with uh, uh, these uh, these two films uh, that uh, Brian did the commentary on That'll Be the Day. And then the two of you uh, uh, have come together to do uh, the commentary on Go Go Mania, uh, I think is the, uh, well, actually Pop Gear, I think is the original title, Go Go Mania yeah. for America. We'll get into all of that. But, you know, first, uh, you know, we got to ask Jeff, you know, the uh, your pandemic story. What have you been doing to survive uh, the virus? And I'm not just talking about COVID. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I've been doing weekly online concerts and raising money for originally for um, Meals of Gratitude, which was a, a charity here in New York City, bringing meals to healthcare workers at my local hospital, Mount Sinai. And then once things died down here a little bit, I started um, raising money for some of the social justice causes and climate change uh, causes. And we've raised a ton of dough and the album comes out shortly. It's called Lockdown Live. And I've been recording, you know, I, I mean, like every other musician in the world, I'm just sitting around. So I was writing and then I got uh, some messages from fellow musicians like, hey, I've got my drums set up. The guy from Paul Weller's band, Ben Gordelia, was like, hey, do you want me to put some drums down? And Jeremy Stacy from Noel Gallagher's band. So, you know, every, everybody's just sort of sitting around. And so those guys and I and Earl Slick and, and Lee Harris from um, Saucer Full of Secrets have at least a single and maybe the makings of an album. So, God, he's such a name dropper, humble. Yeah, well, oh, hey. this, is, this is what I, this is what I, the high life, the, the high flying bird that you are. Yeah. Uh, I've dropped in on uh, a couple of your uh, Thursday acoustic um, yeah. uh, jaunts and they've been great. They've been fantastic. Fun. Uh, I, I love yeah. doing them. I, yeah. I, yesterday I mixed it up and just did, um, or on the latest one, rather, should I say, mm -hmm. um, I mixed it up and I did songs I hadn't done before. I hadn't done in like a couple of months because it had gotten a little I'd fallen into as you do as a performer I'd fallen into a set list and was kind of doing right, the same right. thing well, works this works this, I'm gonna yeah, do I'm gonna, this because I'm works. gonna do this right. over and over and over but then you forget like the same people are there every night it's not <laughs> you know you're not in Milwaukee one night and Eau Claire the next yeah, yeah. you know good night like, Cleveland yeah, oh yeah. that's right we were we're still in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah right. still in Cleveland so 
but but people don't even seem to care. They've been they've been cool, and I get great requests and great feedback. And and I mean, the views started out at like 400 or something a week, and in the last couple of weeks, they've been over 6,000. So that's crazy to me. I don't know who's watching yeah, it. Yeah. But, uh, but God love they must be watching it. My mom is watching it over and over. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's a lot more than yeah, your mom. Yeah. But, uh, but 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 uh, yeah, good for you. Your mom's and, friends. And, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, um, uh, you know, I I I, I want to mention uh, the the new article in Rock Seller uh, that you got to interview. Uh, I think three of the go go four. Uh, their new document. Oh, was it four? Yeah. It was four. Uh, I think. Oh, so Gina was the only Gina one. Gina was that the holdout. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, that that documentary just came out last week. It's it's, it's really blowing up. Uh, and, um, you know, I, 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 I might ask a question why you think that is, because to me, it was a it was a good talk. Don't get me wrong. Uh, definitely well worth the subject. Um, but it's kind of like a standard uh, doc. I, I, I didn't walk away going, wow, that funny. exploded my head. I asked them that because it. It did seem it had already gotten pretty when I talked to all of them, it had already gotten some pretty great reviews and, and pretty good buzz. And and Kathy Valentine, who's who's a pal of mine, Kathy likened it to I'll name drop that. Um, <laughs> likened it to um, you know, this moment is dark and foreboding in the same way that the, Re oh, Reagan, the Reagan, yeah. the Reagan 80s was. And at that time, <laughs> okay. the Go-Go's were kind of, you know, a, a, a breath, of, breath, fresh breath of fresh air, literally, you know, America's sweethearts. Sure. And, and, yeah. and so they're not that anymore, but there's the nostalgia factor and the feel-good factor of them. And that music is very kind of, you know, even though it had punky origins, it, had, it is feel-good music. I mean, it is, you know, yeah. great pop music. So, um, I can't explain it any better than she did, and I'll I'll go with that. I'll buy into that. You know, we'll take that. We'll take that. Okay, so yeah. let's start getting into this in the commentary. So, Jeff, uh, why do you hate the fucking Eagles so much? Because <laughs> they ruin rock <laughs> and roll. They're first of all, they're not rock and roll. Well, I, I mean, come on, Lebowski, tell me the full story here. <laughs> <laughs> what, does that have anything to do with Top Gear? It's, uh, it's like I thought the controversy was going to be. I you mentioned in, it. You mentioned it. Did uh, I? And. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Talked about the Eagles being the death of rock and roll. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they yeah. they were. Yeah. I mean, it started with CSN, right? So the sort of over perfected vocals, and then but the songs, you know, those songs are are good songs, and Stephen Stills is amazing, but and Neil, of course, adds his Neilness. But but once the Eagles came along, and the first two records were kind of cool and had the makings of maybe a cool country rock band i mean they went to england and so the bernie led the bernie bernie led yeah era yeah yeah and cool okay. and well i didn't say they were cool yeah, he's cool i didn't with say you. they were yeah. cool but i'm just saying <laughs> they were um on to something they were on to something and and they went to england and glenn johns you know and the the way they yeah, were, the way they tell <laughs> it you know he's like they're like well we want to sound more rock and roll and he goes it's not possible you guys don't rock you aren't yeah. rock and roll. And they got all, yeah, we're rock and roll. But then they, they hit on this formula that was about commerce over art. And they had, you know, a manager who was yeah. about filling stadiums. Not, and we're not Ir talking Irvine's like arenas. Yeah. We're talking like Dodger Stadium. 
And, and yeah. that changes the equation when you're, when you're, you know, shooting for the cheap seats, you're making music that is, while the quality is obviously there, they put a lot of time and effort into perfecting it. They were all about making businesses from a corporate standpoint that were going to, you know, maximize revenue, return on investment. That if they needed to get rid of somebody because it was going to sell another million oh, records, they, did. they yeah. got rid of them mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> I mean, if Glenn Fry had been the yeah. the the flat tire, Henley would have fucking cut him off in a second. So you know, yeah. I, and vice versa, and and, right. and vice right. versa, and vice versa. But you know, so those guys, okay. those guys were were a satanic partnership, and they, you know, and so when the the, the obvious sort of corollary to that, or or you know, what comes after that is things like '80s hair rock and Bon Jovi and Billy Joel playing the garden every month. And it's just, it's just for money. It's just for show. It's the business part of show business. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We, I think we see some of that in this particular movie. There, there are two very different types yes. of acts yes. that, that come out uh, of this. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But first, had you done DVD commentary before? I don't think I had. Um, no. No, I, 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 may, I might have. I don't remember. That's awful. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that is awful. Yeah. Whether you, yeah, come on. I, yeah, that's one of those things you either kind of know or no, not. No, I think uh, a long so. time ago. I think back in the late 2000s, I might have done one or two. But I, 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 don't, remember if, I don't remember if that got used or not. Hmm. I, I remember doing well, how do you like How do you like doing this uh, this one? Oh, it was fun. Brian, I, I've known Brian forever. We had a great time. He, he'd mentioned it. And I, you know, I knew the the film. It had circulated as a bootleg for years. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't have any any intense love for it, but I thought it would be fun to talk about. But you both had seen it. You you both had seen it before. I had, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of these times I get these uh, assigned to me, and they're newer, and I'm like, oh, well, I'll just I, t I take a lot of these on as a challenge. You know, when I did, when I was doing this one, I thought it was, the lineup was interesting, but then I'm like, I, I sat there thinking, yeah, you know, I, I, I was, I was an eighties guy and I've learned more about classic arc in recent years, but I knew Jeff had a good knowledge of it. And I sort of, a lot of what I brought into was I, I would dig into some more of the more d deeper sort of brand trivia, things like the honeycombs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the same time, I, 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 would, I would tell him stories about, yeah, with all these bands in the eighties, I heard a lot of these songs in the eighties yeah. through other people. Yeah. You know, like Spencer Davis, I heard that it was covered like three different hard rock bands between like 86 and 90, like Great White and uh, and Thunder and Raven, you know, give me, give him some love, whatever. It's just, that was just, so I figured it would be good to bring him in because then we could just riff off each other. And mm -hmm. we did. And mm -hmm. I think we actually, we met, did, at Jimmy, yeah. we met at a Jimmy Page press conference years ago. We'd been connected online, but we actually met in person there. Well, that's not a bad thing. Did we not to, know each uh, other at NYU? Another fellow rock and roller. I don't think so, unless we bumped into yeah. each other. And I'm in, you know. Probably. Oh, did you guys, you guys went to NYU at about the same yeah, time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, mean, I graduated in ninety-one. I was eighty-nine. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible too. Like I, I've started some discovering. Yeah, but he, he, Jeff was an upperclassman, and you were, you know, that's right. I was still, he, he wouldn't hang with you. He'd friend. throw you in a trash can or something like that. If he was lucky. Oh man, I, I, I <laughs> oh, but yeah. I mean, this is really. I, I don't know. It was. I, I thought it'd be fun to do it. I always do these by myself, and they're a lot of work. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, a lot of work. As we discussed previously, yeah, yeah they, they take up a lot. I mean, I just did one for uh, 
Frank Darabont's first movie, Buried Alive. And there's mm. nothing available about that movie. And I had to basically track down two assistant directors on that movie. And I'm so glad I did. Even for That'll Be the Day, like we talked about, I tracked down Ray Connolly because right. even Pop Gear, we, we, I mean, it was, it, was, it was originally called Pop Gear. So when we did the, the commentary at the beginning, we said Pop Gear. And then, and then Frank Aquino was like, well, we're going to call it the original title or the US title, Go Go Mania. I'm like, Oh, but we said Pop Gear. But then you look at the title on screen and Pop Gear is like huge. Right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because, um, uh, yeah. you know, originally it, it, you know, this was made for a UK audience. So it was called yeah. Pop Gear. Um, I, I would assume that the title comes because it started with Top of the Pops and then there, you know, which is a TV show on the BBC at the time, uh, you know, breaking uh, uh, bands. And uh, yeah. now they're going to do a cinema version, right? Is that, well, is that Top, kind of how this Top Gear from? was a, a long running BBC radio show. Oh, that's right. And still, I, that's still a television on, on auto uh, uh, automobiles. Right? No, no, no. Uh, Top Gear um, was, had the Beatles and the Stones and it was a, it was a, <sighs> Oh, or, you know, weekly Sunday afternoon radio show. And it was kind of the, you could hear the Beatles playing their latest hits live. And, and, oh, right in studio. Right in studio, oh. in the BBC studios. Mm -hmm. And so all those, you know, gear became a word because of the Beatles. And so it was top gear, pop gear, you know, whatever, pizza gear, you know, whatever they, you know, whatever it was, <laughs> whatever it was that, 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 we, so they, they, that, that the suits thought was hip and cool. Well, they're, they're, they're just the kids will, the kids will buy like them. all the bands that came to America and a lot of the bands that are in this who predated the Beatles, some of them, um, you know, th they were making money off the backs of the Beatles fame. So gear was a yeah. Beatles word, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, they said it, mm. it was like the jelly babies thing. They said it once and then they were, you know, a hailstorm of jelly babies every time. Oh, they, that's all so, they got. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's the same thing with gear yeah. and fab and all that other bullshit. Mm. Okay. So yeah. why the second name? Uh, uh, and, and was this ever originally released in, uh, in America? I think that's why that sets the go-go mania is the American title. Yeah. But, but was that made for the DVD or did no. they? Did no, no, that was, that was, have a, that was a title back in the day. It was. A, it, was. So, it was a cinema release. So it, it had a yeah, cinema yeah. run in in the United States. Yeah. Again, so. making money off you know anything British Invasion. Yeah, 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 and yeah, because I think it comes out in sixty five, even, yeah. even though it's filmed. Well, sixty four, I think actually, or yeah, and when well, sixty four is when it was filmed. Uh, but I think it does come out yeah. in early sixty five. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and then and actually, what's interesting is. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that Jeff loves came out in like 65. Like this is like literally right before everything shifted. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah, it's yeah. funny too that the, the clip of the Beatles at the Royal Command performance there, which is in every, that beginning every documentary yeah. ever about the, the yeah, yeah. 60s. Yeah, the 60s. Yeah, yeah, You think about it, that was November 63. And so this is coming out in cinemas in mid 65. The Beatles were already smoking weed, making hell. They're so far, yeah. they're making, they're making, while this is playing in cinemas, they're making and releasing Rubber Soul. They're so far right. removed from She Loves You and Twist and Shout. It doesn't even, and most of these bands though, are, have, are still are, doing well, that. They're, yeah. Most of them, or even most worse. of them are gone. <laughs> and the ones that have survived, yeah. like the animals are still pretty much planned or the Spencer Davis group or whatever, they're still pretty much that mold. They haven't like moved on from that in any meaningful way. Whereas the Beatles have already, I mean, they don't, they don't even, 
they're not recognizable from the Beatles that are in this film. Anyway. No, no, no. At that time, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. So it seems to the casual observer that, um, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a look at the, uh, the Mersey beat craze in the UK, uh, which is, you know, prior to 65. I mean, that, that kind of is the, the, the scene that, um, that they're saying uh, that they're selling along with a bunch of Brian Epstein, uh, yeah. uh, managed, and more uh, conventional uh, stuff too. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, I was watching it again, talking about like Susan Mon, who's a good singer, mm-hmm. but as Jeff pointed out, we already had Doris Day. <laughs> um, and, and, and a lot of this stuff, you know, Matt Monroe, actually Matt Monroe had a huge had, career, had a long career. Really? And actually even, yeah. even, you know, Spanish language albums, like several of them. Yeah. yeah. This guy yeah. crossed over, but it's interesting how a majority of the stuff, I'd be curious anybody under like 40, if they would know a lot of these names. And some of this stuff is even a lot, most of us on Spotify, but some of the tracks are not on, like Susan Mon, not on Spotify. Yeah, no, uh, there were a lot of, a lot I did not know. Yeah. I was like, wow. Like um, the Nashville teens, which were actually, you know, other than the known acts, I kind of was like, wow, they were kind of cool. What happened to them? Yeah. Uh, sort of, thing. you know, but that was a great point that you made, Jeff and, and Brian, you just brought it up. And that is that a lot of these acts had a, uh, an American equivalent so therefore, maybe that was a good reason why they never made it over on this side of the pond. Uh, whereas, you know, nobody had the Beatles. Right. And I think- Well, the Honeycombs were original. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I, I, I would take issue with the idea that it's a Mercy Beat film because there's a couple of acts that are Brian Epstein acts and sort of Jerry and the mm-hmm. Pacemakers, Herman's Hermits and, and so forth. And, and even sort of the Animals and Spencer Davis sort of fit into the post-Beatles craze mold. But beyond that, um, a lot of these acts were just fairly generic pop acts who were aping American styles. I mean, the Beatles were doing their completely their own thing. The Animals were doing completely their own thing. Whereas, you know, the Honeycombs were doing like, you know, a generic pop sound for 1964. So, right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the and Honeycombs had, but Honeycombs had an interesting that. guitar sound, though. Yeah, yeah. I think they were they were a little different. The production on that on their stuff was a bit different. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised they didn't last longer than they did. Actually, I mean, Joe Meek worked with them, although he I, you know, died, committed suicide '67. But um, it, it, it's weird. Like, I think I asked Jeff this question while we were doing it. This whole idea of like why do certain groups you know make it better better than others? You know, there's just and sometimes there's a lot of different factors that even though you get into the history books, you know. Well, that's the immortal question. I mean, how, how does somebody make it, uh, um, you know, uh, and what it is? And, uh, you know, I think timing is probably the, the, the biggest factor. Um, you know, originality, maybe something doesn't see. You know, as we discussed uh, at the very beginning, you know, the fact that the Go-Go's currently uh, are blown up because they, they're nostalgically a good um, medicine for dark times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so there are a lot of a, a lot of reasons, but uh, uh, that, um, but um, you know, to, you know, looking back in the early '60s, you know, <clears throat> there was only a few slots that were available uh, to uh, to acts, and if you didn't fit in that slot, you you, you know, you you didn't make it. Wouldn't you well, say? you got to remember too, a, a lot of these acts are fairly mediocre. I mean, you know, and in the wake, yeah, in the yeah, wake of, yeah. in the they're doing. A, a pale imitation of an American act. And so, you know, in the wake of the Beatles, you had to be able, like the Animals or Spencer Davis or, you know, the Stones or the Who or whoever it is, you had to be able to hold your own. You know, you, it, mm-hmm. Jerry and the Pacemakers 
were cool in 1965, but not by 1966. Same with Herman's Hermits. I mean, you know, yeah. everybody had sort of fallen off. These, this was, this was, it's a time capsule. I mean, this is, this is, this yeah, is like, really is. this is the shift in popular culture. There are a lot of sort of pre-Beatles, Beatlemania bands in here that are doing the old style of, you know, what, pop rock music you know that was sort of the charts were filled with how much is that doggy in the window and you know whatever else was in the charts and sort of mediocre elvis songs that you know from his kind of post gi blues era but you know i, I mean mm. there wasn't a lot going on musically before the beatles came along and then all of a sudden they came along and wiped all of these acts these acts were all going to be gone by 1966 not just because Joe Meek yeah. died, but because yeah, other than the yeah. animals and uh, and Spencer Davis, I think uh, that's that's pretty much it. And even Spencer Davis group by '67, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Winwood, Winwood's in uh, in Black yeah, Street. and because you know acts acts were required to write their own music, and they were required because of what the Beatles were doing to evolve really rapidly. And I don't mean this to turn yeah. into like a Beatle podcast or anything, but th there is. Even though the Beatles, the film of the Beatles is from literally a year before any of these yeah. bands. It's ever even filmed. Yeah. 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 It's still, you know, light years ahead of anything these acts were doing at the end of 1964. When they had already charted with She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand and whatever else that they were they were doing in 1964. And these bands were still, they were already playing catch up and they were already losing. So um yeah you know yeah yeah we we, we know you know 1965 is the beginning of the counterculture era or what you know what you consider the 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 classic 1960s uh you know is, too. Is, yeah. is the second half of, of the decade uh yeah. not the first half and uh you know as, as you correctly point out you know this time capsule of a film has kind of that moment of shift you can definitely see the acts, the as you call them, cabaret acts. Uh, you yeah. know, just don't just don't have a footing for what's coming. Uh, you know, and you know it, it's hard to see at the time, um, but it's it's pretty obvious with hindsight. That's why I really love that movie, that thing you do, because it really kind of shows you what it was like to be a band back then. Because they didn't really have a game plan either. I mean, also the wonders. radio, you had to, you really had to get on radio. I mean, these days I was thinking about you know, there's no MTV really. It's YouTube. YouTube is the new MTV. And something like Spotify is the new radio. I mean, people still listen to radio, but the fact is, is you have the algorithm. So I get exposed to a lot of music. People argue that the algorithms aren't great. I'm like, I don't know. I've discovered a lot of cool bands based on bands that I like. Like when I got into the synthwave thing, I just started to go down this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. I discover Stranger Things and, you know, and uh, survive. And then I discover all these other groups. And it's a little easier now to dig into that. Whereas before oh, you, had, you, had the radio, you, had, you yeah. had the radio or you had to go to a record store or you had yeah. sat in your friend's living room. Yeah. Yeah. There really weren't many options or you went to see a movie like Pop Gear. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's face it. We live in a world where, you know, the entirety of human knowledge is in your hand at all. Yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, there's some groups I think like I, I like the honeycombs and certain groups and there's some people here I can see why they didn't make it. And there's, I mean, there's always going to be uh, conventional stuff going on. Right. I mean, you're always going to have uh People doing a traditional thing now although i i guess when you're talking about nostalgia with the go-go's yeah i mean the, the go-go's weren't like you know virtual true musicians weren't a lot of the rock bands weren't but they had a sound that kind of worked and yes nostalgia is huge it's interesting how even with a movie like this there's probably an audience for this for people who loved what was going on in 64 and are were upset oh, by yeah. the change in 65 i actually had two, I two guys in my neighborhood in long island and they're both actually both <laughs> vietnam vets 
one of them loves the Beatles and the other one hates the Beatles. And I asked the guy, other guy, so why does he hate the Beatles? He's like, well, you know, he feels like he loved doo-wop and he felt like the Beatles came along and them and some other people killed off doo-wop. I'm like, that's interesting. I'd never thought about them. Oh, that's how I felt about Nirvana when Nirvana and all those grunge bands came along and like knocked out metal. You know, there are people who do get attached. I mean, it's amazing how you can look at U.S. music in 82, 83, and then MTV takes over. And by 85, 86, it's an entirely different paradigm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even in the hard rock world, there was a lot of no frills kind of stuff. And then things got cheesier. And on the commercial side, you know, lots of big synths and you had an overdone production. And it's what Jeff was talking about with some of the, even the bands in the 70s there were certain groups that decided to, to cater to a sound and cater to radio. And rock and roll is not about that. And rock and roll doesn't, I mean, I, I try to listen to a lot of new rock bands and there's not that many that I'm really thrilled with because it's so, oh, so overproduced and sampled now. It's crazy. What's well, you I'm have certain face. groups coming around that are, you know, like Rival Sons and something who are, who are trying to go more old school. Yeah, but it, I mean, you know, it's, this, we're, we're talking about an art form that's now going on 70 years, yeah. uh, which is fantastic and amazing. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, definitely uh, historical uh, uh, across the board, but, you know, it, it's so hard these days to, you know, write something that hasn't been written or create a sound that hasn't been heard, you know, um, and, and again, not to make this a Beatles podcast, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, you think about a song like Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, just some small trickery and like just introducing a, a sitar, you know, that literally made people's heads explode. Where, where are you going to go find the sitar today? I mean, you know, well, again, the way you use the everything sitar. is right here, you know? So I, I think it's, well, I think it's, you know, like then, like, for example, I was really not a fan of nineties rock, What I loved about the nineties though, is that on the, in the underground underneath all of that stuff, there was a lot of interesting things happening in a lot of different yeah, genres. Yeah, there was the a lot of cross pollination cool. of genres yeah. and it didn't really bubble up mm -hmm. to the mainstream. Like you have an EDM act that'll, sample a sitar oh we're doing world music i'm like no you're not you're not <laughs> yeah. doing world music. Yeah, go well, to what peter gabriel was releasing yeah, a lot of those that, acts that was, or like world or like music, a group yeah. like afro celt sound system would mix up dance music with irish and african stuff but it was much more yeah, legit or johnny just some dj sampling like, yeah. Yeah. you know looping something and and that's that i think looping was another sort of fact in the death of rock and, and, and of classic rock and rolls like just manipulating things and if you're going to use a sitar now then really use a sitar take what the beatles did and then try to evolve it into something greater mm -hmm. but people don't seem to want to do that or if they do you just don't hear it it's out well, there i think yeah the, you Jeff's know heard uh, a lot of stuff that maybe he likes it just doesn't get as much attention well there's also you know uh, uh, again you know we're, we're talking about a um, a period in time where there's maybe a thousand acts total that that are you know, in the game uh, at the yeah. most. And that that's probably an overestimation. Now there's, you know, I think Daniel Eck just said last week, you know, there used to be a top 40. Now there's a top 43,000, you know, yeah. that's that that's the difference. And so it's, you know, it, it's really hard to stand out, uh, I think is is the point. Uh, there's just a lot of mediocrity. And, uh, you know, as, as we've, we've said, uh, Jeff, you just said about the Beatles, they were just light years ahead of everybody else. Uh, uh, at the time, and you can see that in this film. And yet, you know, well, Jeff, and, kind of... and, and weird, weird stuff rises, you know, pops up periodically. I mean, I don't think we mentioned this in the in the audio commentary, but the Honeycombs, the song "Have Have I the Right," is the theme song for the John Cleese sitcom "Hold the Sunset." Yes, did, oh. did I? Okay, I, I didn't know if that yeah, came it's up. In there. But it's like every time I hear it, it's discordant. It's weirdly recorded. It's a terrible theme song. I don't know why. But you know, there is a, there is a group of people. I mean, that show is for older 
you know, white haired British people, you know, John's age, they're sort of catering to a nostalgia market. Those people hear that song, they remember 1964, mm-hmm. 65. You know, they, they yeah. have a fond memory of that, of that band and that song. It isn't discordant or no. weird. Sound <laughs> no, it's the same as like, you so, know, Vera Lynn, you know, who just recently passed, you know, meaning something to that World War II. Well, they're not Vera Lynn, but yes. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Yeah. What were you going to ask me, Brian? I'm curious. Well, I was going to, what I was going to ask is, uh, well, you know, back when the Beatles, I mean, obviously the Beatles stopped touring at a certain point because it was no point. they couldn't hear themselves. But what's interesting is that they recorded... Yeah, they recorded a lot of they recorded a lot of music. We've had a lot of, I mean, they, they kept recording music and doing things. And it feels like artists today don't do that. It takes them a two lot al- longer. Two albums a year album. and four that, singles. Yeah, and a lot of classic bands that we like did an album or two. I remember like Priest did, I think, Stained Class and Hellbent for Leather in the same year. Yep. You know, and it's like those are two classic metal records. So, do you think because they just they were expected to do that 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 in a way it kind of forced more creativity rather than saying, well, you just do it when you feel like it. No, 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 no. They were under contract to do that. And that was what was expected. And, you know, that, that, all those, the 14 songs on two records, plus the four singles, which means eight extra songs, meant that in the United States in 64 and 65, they had about four or five albums plus singles to come out. It's ridiculous, the amount of output. But, you know, I think there are artists who are, um, really churning out work right now. Um, I mean, you know, we, I mentioned Phoebe Bridgers uh, on a, another interview I did. I interviewed her for the Wall Street Journal, um, and she's got a bunch of different side projects. She's producing. She's doing guest vocals. She's putting out singles all the time. She's working with, uh, she's got a side project with Connor Oberst. I mean, if it's not just that she's putting out her own music all the time, which she is. She's on a bunch of different things. And it's people like that who are sort of endlessly creative, whether you, Billie Eilish is another good example, you know, whether you, they, they're your cup of tea, they're the modern equivalent of, of like constantly churning out product. I mean, people will, people will argue over and over whether Ryan Adams had the right amount of quality control when he was putting out like three albums a year there in the, around 2005. But, um, you know, ultimately over time, they make it onto playlists or greatest hits or whatever. And you can see that there were four or five great songs on all of those releases. And those will kind of rise to the top the way, you know, nobody's listening to Mr. Moonlight now. They're listening to No Reply and Babies in Black and whatever else was on that. So, um, you know, I mean, you want to have a catalog too. Yeah. I mean, you want to have a catalog and you don't know as an artist, what's going to rise. No, you don't, you, you don't, don't make don't that decision. What, no, the right? audience makes that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, you, you know, plan. I mean, I think there was a time when, when Lennon and McCartney knew, you know, McCartney has a great story where he showed up at, uh, at John's house and he, he had some ideas and John said, right, let's write a swimming pool. You know, I mean, they knew they were going to, whatever they were doing, they were on a roll. They could do just about no wrong at that point. But I think most artists, you, you think you're onto something and it's pretty good, but then you're putting it out into the ether, especially mm. now. So, uh, you know, I think somebody like, like Billie Eilish or Phoebe Bridgers or Connor Oberst, who are constantly putting out new music, they're doing that because eventually something hits 
you know, hits the wall and, and, and will get them some attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think, and also you want to have that catalog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reason certain artists fast, you know, like, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I was discussing with a friend of mine because, you know, we actually like some Nickelback stuff and a lot of my friends just loathe them, just hate them. But if you actually go through <laughs> the catalog, there's a, no, there you go. Yes. You know, I yeah. you I'm a little, I, what, I'm what a little shocked. I, know, I, know, I, love, I, I love to shock, I love to shock people with that. I'm, I, I'm friends with one of the guys in the band and he takes it, he has a good sense of humor about it. I mean, you know, and it's what's, but what's interesting is that they have enough songs that they have a greatest hits package, regardless of whether you like a band or not. Part of the key is if you have enough songs to have a greatest hits album, that's going to True. float you for a really long time. I mean, we were talking about even one hit yeah, can yeah. actually keep you going for. There's some people who literally only had one hit in the 70s they're, and 80s, they're, and they they're, still they're doing, they're doing the, the, uh, the the reality uh, is, the is if you if you uh, circuit or there's no circuit right now, but you, know, you have enough. And there's some Nickelback stuff I'm not a huge fan of, but there's some that I, I like and I think is underrated. And what's funny about it is that there's enough songs that they can, they can keep touring. They don't even have to put a new album out because they can play in front of 10,000 people a night. And it doesn't matter what genre it is if you have that. And I think that's one of the problems is these days it's. Yeah, there is, there's a quality control issue. And I think most of the bands that Jeff and I love had a great producer. That's not something you necessarily have. Now, it's, it, it's self-producing is fine. It um, is. But I remember I was- It actually I was, I was is. It's good to, to have somebody else <laughs> no, I remember in your Joe head Perry, besides you. Yeah. I remember I interviewed Joe Perry, like was it 15 years ago for Goldmine for Metal Edge when he had his first solo album out since the 80s. And I remember that he had self-produced it in his basement at the studio in, up in Vermont, I guess. And uh, what was interesting was that I had just listened to an album by Shadow Gallery, which is a progressive metal group out of Pennsylvania. And they didn't self-produce it. They had a producer. They were one of those bands that never toured. They were a studio band. They put all their money into their gear and the recording. And their album with six or seven musicians on it sounded better and clearer than Joe Perry's album with like three musicians on it because they got a producer who came in and knew what he was doing and knew how to make it sound good. Whereas Joe Perry, while he maybe had a thicker sound, it didn't sound as as nuanced. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, all respect to him, he's a great guitar player, but just it's you know, no surprise that Radiohead's best albums, McCartney's probably best album of the last 20 years, and Roger Waters' best solo album, Recent Memory are all produced by Nigel Godrich, who is a, an old school producer who said to Paul McCartney when you know, he brought him the songs for uh, uh, Chaos and Creation, uh, he said, yeah, these aren't good enough, write some more. And Paul's like, well, no, these are the songs I wrote. And I'm Paul McCartney. And he goes, no, so no. What the hell do you know? Right. <laughs> and, he, and, he said, and he said, no, these are, write some more, or fix this one, or you know, whatever. Everybody yeah. needs that. Everybody, even if you're Paul McCartney or Roger Waters or Radiohead for that matter, you need somebody to tell you, do this again, cut this down, this is too long, this doesn't need to be seven minutes, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, or to tell you, <laughs> I don't think he heard that, you, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't, but that's okay. Or to tell you, or to tell you, no, hey, Jude is just right at seven minutes and yeah. four seconds. It's perfect. Because McCartney Very was concerned. concerned. Yeah, he, he didn't know if that was, you know, if that could be released. And there was a lot of discussion on that, you know, obviously. It turned out to be and George Martin said, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. There you go. You have to have somebody you can trust, hmm. you know, and I think it was making me think, you know, Accept came back many, many years ago. They reunited like a decade, it's a decade ago now. And, and like uh, Andy Sneap, who's now playing guitar with Judas Priest, uh, you know, they started doing some stuff and he's like, not good enough. He's like, don't pander to what you think people want to listen to right. today. Go back to what made you 
famous and what people love you for and what you were great at. And he pushed them and said, this isn't good. And you know what? They put a, a great reunion album because that forced them into, you know, yeah, it sounded modern in its production, but it was still them. And I think that's a tricky part for a lot of older artists is to try to, you know, Bowie was really great at reinventing himself, but that's kind of a rarity. He was a rare artist. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when he was doing drum and bass stuff in the 90s, I and mean, he made it work. A lot of artists would, mm -hmm. at that age would not have made it Well, that he work. also was hanging out he, with, he was with a rarity. Uh, Trent Reznor, so that kind of helped. <laughs> yeah. And also in the tour, and then I remember when the Nine Inch Nails Bowie tour happened, and people were like, yeah. really? And my ex-girlfriend, yeah. like, this is great. She loved both of them. It was great. But, you know, it's a, it, it was a lot of artists, you know, and, and yeah. Bowie working oh, with Donnie yeah. McCaslin. Black Stars. You know, a master. I mean, that was a great, yeah. a great it's the final, but the, it's but, you know, that's the. the and some artists don't need to necessarily reinvent themselves either. They can just do what they do really well and just find little nuanced ways to change it. I mean, ACDC, I love them, but you know, there's really only three or four albums you really need to own out of the whole ACDC catalog. People would argue not, but there's really a few seminal albums and then the rest of it, if you love them, you'll get it, I guess. But no, they, 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 they um, definitely perfected even the then, formula that's and stuck with it for time and eternity. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. I guess there's something to be said for both, but let's, let's get back to the, to the film here. So, you know, um, Jeff, uh, another comment that I picked up on, you kept pointing out all the American guitars, uh, which were certainly hard mm. to find in the UK at the time. But I, I, I think I read that because Liverpool was a port town, um, the local players uh, with a little more cash could pick up American axes from uh, like merchant marines um, easier than like the guys in London. Uh, and it kind of went out from there, you know, and, and that, that also yeah. goes to not just the, the guitars, but also the records, you know, and that that's part of why mm -hmm. maybe some of this happened out in, you know, cause, uh, you know, in, in entertainment in the UK, prior to the Beatles, if, you know, outside of London, you, you know, you were in the sticks and nobody really cared or paid attention to you. Right. And couldn't understand you because oh, of your yeah, accent. Yeah. 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 Right. You know, yeah, yeah. there was ve very much the sort of upper crusty, you know, the, what is yeah, that? The caste, the caste system yeah. of the UK. Yes. Are, yeah. 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 Are you from Brooklyn? What are, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, the Beatles didn't even have great instruments. A lot of the guys who came along a little bit afterward were able to get Strats and Tellys and, you know, Gibsons and things like that. When yeah, we talked about that in the commentary, all these guys with these great yeah. instruments, you're like, really? Those are expensive. Yeah, yeah. And, and at that time, a Strat was, you know, probably not, not a lot relative to now, but, um, you know, a, a, you know, when people are only making 12... 15 pounds a week and and a, a strap was probably two or three hundred pounds that's that's a considerable mm -hmm. amount of money mm -hmm. so, so now yeah. let's talk a little bit about the the, the nascent mtv aspect of uh, the presentation uh here and do you think they they were kind of trying to to well i guess this is a two-part question were they were they trying to emulate the americans like the tammy show or this just strictly a uk you know out of top of the pops uh, and this was the natural next iteration. And were there other films like this? Oh, I've stumped the panel. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was waiting for, I was waiting for Brian. The, 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 you know, th this is a formula. There was already a formula for these. There was a show the year before, which is in black and white, called Around the Beatles, which is just Beatles music and songs written by John and Paul. 
um, or I guess that was the music of Lennon and McCarty. That's what that one was called. Around the Beasles was a different show. But th that sort of variety show format is pretty tried and true in America, but especially in the UK. They were packages, people tuned in on Sunday night at seven or eight o'clock, and this is what they watched for an hour. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the, the sort of campy MC and mixing genres the way, you know, you got to remember the, the, the mixing of genres in this show is very similar to the mixing of genres that the BBC, you know, you'd listen to the BBC back then or even as, as late as the 80s and 90s when I, when I was over there, you'd hear jazz and then you'd hear the Spice Girls and then you'd hear Oasis. It was just like, yeah. what the fuck you know and 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 so this is very much that where they were mixing yeah. kind of like am, am radio here and, in the 60s and, <clears throat> you, you kind, get up kind yeah. of like yeah. am radio here until you know until yeah, it, 68 it, yeah, 69 it and then it, oh and of course obviously right radio comes in and uh you know totally changes the game right, album right. Orient. this was not the, well, american radios American radio also became more homogenized too. I mean, it's interesting how we have a lot of these big rock festivals and pop festivals and EDM festivals now in the last 10, 15 years, but mm -hmm. Europe had had those mm -hmm. for a while. Yes. It just seems like here, here we've always, I mean, I, I remember growing up as a teenager in the eighties and like I was a metal kid and there was me who'd be the punk kid or the goth kid or like people really identified yeah. with a subculture. And, and I don't know if that's the same in Europe or I mean, they have that, they have the goth mm -hmm. scene. I mean, like in Germany particularly, but we just seem, it seems like Europe, they seem a bit, more open to that diversity yeah. in here. Well, we have we have certain I've never, uh, yeah. obviously racially and sexually, so uh, less of that in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> so. that's a good point. Well, I worked at a music store in in LA in the for a year in the early '90s, right after I got out of school, and it was interesting. I, I that's when I started embracing sort of everything, and I had to listen to everything. You're in the store; you had to just listen to whatever the manager or somebody put on. You know, so it was interesting to try to sell music to people to see what they would listen to. Some people had very specific things they wanted. Some people were open. Of course, this is in Brentwood where people were rich. So I, if they bought 10 CDs, I would sell them six more. <laughs> you know, and, but I, I love that. But some people, for some reason, like that's the thing I find about a lot of rock and metal fans that just kind of drive me up a wall. That there's some people that are our age that like they don't list, still don't listen to a lot of other stuff. I'm like, really? Like there's this whole world. Well, those were, those were, and it's all so in much. your yeah, telephone. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, those were tribes. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jeff, I mean, Jeff's a classic rock yeah. guy, but he listens well, to I, a lot I of other the, stuff too, you know? I mean, yeah, the three of us definitely of us. are, are, you know, the whole point is to, you know, get as much exposure as possible to get as many different views and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, in your own head uh, on how, all these pieces connect together. Uh, at least that's why, you know, I, and I, I love all music. Uh, I, there's not a type of music that I don't uh, like. Um, you know, I used to say I hated bluegrass until I realized that bluegrass is just metal on acoustic instruments. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the speed and the dexterity, you know, that, that sort of thing. It, it has that, sure. that, you know, that yeah. musicianship that you just go, holy crap, those guys are that good um you know but uh uh anyway so back back to the to the to the the movie here so th so this was packaged as kind of like a smorgasbord or sampler plate so the kids for a nickel or a dime go into the theater you know get uh get the uh you know here here here's an exposure to this and then and then hopefully run out and go buy uh the record or the concert. Well, it's, a, it's a cash grab. It's a cash grab. I mean, I don't, I don't really see any other reason to do this. I mean, they obviously did it on the same set. And as Jeff was yeah, pointing out, they yeah. probably did one take of a lot of this stuff. You know, like the dancers, <laughs> oh, the they dancers just went in and did it. I mean, the guy that Jeffrey that Unsworth painful worked in 2001 and Superman. Yeah. This is the guy that really, mm -hmm. you know, knew what he was doing. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it is, the Beatles thing was just there, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that, that was just slapped you on know, the, be, the beginning and the end. You know, it, it, it's totally out of context to the rest of the film. And there's no information on this movie. I mean, when I was researching yeah. it, it's like there's nothing on why it was made, who made it. Like, I even will ask Kino, like, do you guys get production notes? And they rarely do. Like, all these movies yeah. and commentaries yeah. for it, it's, it's like this. That's why I started reaching out to actors. And, and assistant directors and like any story I found like I did Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox I reached out to one of the supporting actors and he at least confirmed some things for me and gave me a few stories to fill it out otherwise you're just I mean with Gogo Mania it's a little easier we, we well yeah, each band knowledge. has its yeah. own story yeah, so you can at least through. go back into that and, and look at look at that so yeah I mean and I think it's funny what Jeff was saying Jeff was saying before we were before we really started recording about how we thought we were going really fast and like we actually don't think we were going that fast yeah you but know, we but that, we could was, have done we could have done like a second audio commentary there was so much we could yeah. have said even even the very not well-known acts they're unique mm -hmm. and interesting in their own way there's a lot to say about and there's a few that are you know sort of one hit wonders are just not that interesting was but it the four by pennies, and large four I mean, pennies, I could, uh, that was atrocious. <laughs> yeah, well you know um I, you know i could have talked about the animals oh, yeah. for half an hour we could have talked about the spencer davis mm -hmm. group for half an hour so um oh, yeah. you know and and even even like sounds incorporated the 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 foremost you know uh, peter and yeah. gordon i mean you know they have a, they have a whole story there that's that's really interesting. Of course, it involves the Beatles yet again, but um, you know, I mean, London in that moment, 1964-5, was really blossoming and was about to become the London that you, Christian, have sort of mentioned a few times that it was going to be in 66 yeah. and 67. Bag of nails yeah. and all these other, you know, Granny takes a trip and all these other UFO. places yeah. that yeah. we now know. Yeah, yeah. And, and th this was the sort of, you know, beginnings, the germ of mm -hmm. the idea. And, and the Beatles were already onto other things, but these, these bands were the ones that were gonna kind of make, right. it, make it happen. But I think also the challenge with the commentary, I mean, Jeff brought in a lot of good mm -hmm. anecdotes about fashion, you know, and the way they were, especially during the animal segment, talking about how this, a couple of them had their shirts unbuttoned, they had certain jewelry and things. And, yeah. Risque. And they yeah, were really, yeah, yeah. It might seem very basic to us now, but they meant a lot. And I think that was what I think that's what was fun about the commentaries. It wasn't just totally about the music. There was sort of elements of whether you know what they were playing or how they looked, or or even how mm -hmm. camera savvy a lot of them may or may not have been. It, there's a lot. I mean, it, even with the stuff that seems more pedestrian, you don't. It's you know we only get three three minutes per clip. It went by. I think it felt fast because when we recorded, <laughs> there's the song. That's the end of the song. Yeah. All right, so uh, there is yeah. uh, one giant horrible problem with this film. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Savile is the MC. Um, not hard to do research on Jimmy. <laughs> not at all. Look, and when I, I never got that guy. Yeah. Uh, to me, he was always an idiot and completely without charm, which is really weird uh, when you're talking about an English spokesperson, because I mean, to Americans, they all are filled with charm. And then here's this guy. Um, you know, you know, obviously him being in the film is horrid and might cause a lot of people to turn out. But so couldn't they have edited, edited him out? If they know. 
Well, he was kind of, unfortunately, there's some segues there that are kind of hard to do that. I mean, I asked, I asked, I did ask uh, Jeff, like, and Jeff, I think Jeff's like, yeah, let's just not. You, you, little, guys, made you guys went by that in, in light speed. You said, oh, there's Jimmy. <laughs> well, you could, you, yeah. because it's such a because it would have, <laughs> it, it was such a rabbit hole. It would have consumed so much time. And to what end? I mean, everybody knows the story. Everybody can see who he is I know. just by being on the screen. We sort of alluded to it and moved on because, you know, fuck him. I just, it's like, you know, you don't want to talk about the guy who killed John Lennon. You don't want to talk about Jimmy. He's just an awful person and not worth the attention. It detracts from, look, there, there are acts in there who most people will have never yeah. seen. Oh, yeah. I wanted yeah. to and 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 legitimately had a moment in popular culture that interested me and that's what I want to talk about. Jimmy Savile has had his fucking fifteen minutes. We didn't right. need to talk right. about him. I'd rather yeah. talk about yeah. the Honeycombs. You know, I'd rather yeah. talk about Bouncing Well, uh, Rock and uh, to, yeah, to, yeah. to move on, I, I I don't know if you guys know, but you know there was uh, a Spanish introduction by uh, Argentinians, uh, Palito Ortega and uh, Graciela uh, Borges. That, that was to replace briefly, think, Jimmy Savile. Uh, in uh, I, I, you know, and and by the way, now we have a third name for the film called uh, El Rey en Londres, uh, the King uh, in London. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I almost wish that they could have, they could have done that, and then, and then added yeah. the subtitles uh, for the introductions, and just gotten rid of Jimmy Savile completely and utterly. But uh, all right, you yeah. know, besides the Fab Four, which are obvious, uh, obviously put in as the hook to get the butts in the seats, uh, and the am animals, Spencer Davis, yeah. Herman's Hermits, Peter Gordon, you know, who all made at least a ripple uh, in America. You know, do you think? Um, uh, you know, there's a, a woulda coulda uh, that the rest uh, that that are now in obscurity that 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 each of you would would like to you know say that uh, we should go and pay a little bit more attention to. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I mean, and you know, that I, takes I, I kinda, the seventy like, minute film down to fun, they, fifteen. They, <laughs> fifteen. I mean, I like I like the honeycombs. I like sounds incorporated were fun. I mean, they weren't. You know they were interesting. I mean, as, as I told Jeff during the commentary, it makes you think of yeah. madness. It's not quite the same thing. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah I uh, can well, see that. Well, but they they had their moment, and they're known. They opened for the Beatles yeah. on their yeah. American tours. You know, and people yeah. know who they. How many people say? How many people yeah. do they know? That, I do. Though? That's yeah. the question. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You know that this is the, the tricky part is that for us we know certain things, and I, this is the quandary I have when I'm writing for places like Discogs or whatever, and I'm sure Jeff's come come across this where like you assume people are going to know what you're talking about. And sometimes you have to you have to remind them. It's always a challenge. Like, what, which I guess it depends on which. If you're writing for Goldmine Magazine, it's one thing. Yeah. If you're writing for yeah, a right. rock seller, which H1. I know that, uh, Jeff does. But then when you're writing for like a mainstream newspaper or a mainstream music, you're not writing for Mojo. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do? Yeah. And then the tricky part now is it print. I mean, even online stories, they're not letting you write as much as they used to. They're actually really starting to limit a lot of things. Like two thousand words is where a lot of places top out because there's so many stories out there. You know, Billboard might let, me, let me go wrong, longer, say if it's a historical piece, right. like a, making of a famous album, and they can let you go longer. But a lot, and I understand. I, I'm beginning to understand it. I mean, you look at the emails you get these days. It's an eight-minute read. You know, uh, the latest story from Justin <laughs> Christian Swain, eleven minutes, and actually, it's, it's usually a lie. It's usually like about three minutes longer, but they don't want you to check out. So they'll, 
they, they, yeah, it's yeah. Amazing this will take you 2.5 minutes don't to just read. sit yeah, down anymore. All the time now. And people even sit down without, there was a great article in the LA Times recently about, you know, turn off your phone, sit down with the album and listen to it. Like people don't do that anymore. They're listening to something else. I remember I was interviewing Steve Albini, like I think it was about, uh, it was a, in, in mm-hmm. utero, you know? And, uh, and, and I was saying like, yeah, sometimes I, when I first put on an album, like I am doing something else to see what grabs my attention. It's like, well, that maybe that says something about the way you listen to music, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was cranky, but it was funny. Cause well, but, you know, you know it, it was funny, but I, I kind of liked his crankiness though. Yeah. Because, you know, like he still had that rock and roll attitude. It's like, I don't really give a shit what you think like this is, but in a way it's, it's good. I mean, a good point. I mean, I, I, I'm so overwhelmed even as a writer, I, Jeff, you've probably gone through this too, where like you get so much stuff that sometimes you, you put it on because you want to just see what actually hits you. And then, but in the old, but then you still, you can still miss stuff. I usually, I can tell if I like something fairly quickly. I can, if there's a kernel of something like, okay, I'll go back and listen to this again. And then there's stuff like you, artists you like, you didn't like it when it first came yeah. out. And then all of a sudain yeah. it, it grows on. And like when I heard Painkiller yeah. by Priest, I was like, it, it, it was weird. And my favorite band, I'm like, ah, I listened to it twice. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And then over time, I'm like, oh, I get it now. You know, but some albums, they're not meant, and this is the problem in our, our short attention span world. People mm-hmm. don't, they just go on to the next thing. And you could be missing out on a masterpiece. There could be some, you know, great new album that comes out even by a young band and you ignore it. And then later on, you're like, oh, I see what's going on here. I wonder how many people, even who liked the Beatles back in the day, didn't get everything. And then years later, they came around to it. Like they didn't love absolutely everything the Beatles did or the Stones did. And go back and go, oh, that's actually, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of Stones albums. Like oh, that. sure. I mean, uh, yeah. Jeff's going to hate on, uh, like, oh, this, yeah. uh, this story, but, uh, you know, I, I was introduced to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> this is the, this is his Beatles, other band he really hates. Uh, you know, I was introduced to the Grateful Dead, and I didn't get it. I went to the first time I saw him was Dylan and the Dead. I didn't get it, and then you know, finally, I went to another show and was like, oh, I get it. I, I totally get it. And now I've seen like 30, 40 shows. So you know, there's, there's, there, yeah, I think all of us are exposed to things, and it may not be our cup of tea at the moment. And later on, it uh, it fits a void, or uh, maybe uh, connections make you go, oh, now I understand how this fits together, and things like that. And I think we all go through that. Well, like this, what the, 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 the perceived sellout. And occasionally people do commercialize and you roll your eyes, but later on, you know what I like about that is that if it's a band you really like, there'll still be all that matters. Good songs it's on there. And when you're doing your greatest hits collection yeah. on Spotify, you go, oh, okay, now I can break yeah. things up with yeah. this song, which is nothing like the rest of them. And I love that. I, there aren't that many rock singers to me that really change their vocals that much. They're identifiable, but they don't really challenge themselves. When you find someone who does that, then you're like, yeah. it really does well, help you put something together. I think that's the complaint I have with like a lot of modern rock singers is that they just all, they sound like themselves, but they never push anything. Yeah. Well, right, they just sound, the they sound like or, the, you know, the generic vocal point, like, oh, that's, that's in vogue at the moment. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like Britney yeah. Spears yeah. now, they, yeah. now for the next 10 years, I got to listen to every pop singer who sounds like a baby, you know? Um, well, they did, they did that in the eighties too. There's certain, uh, certain oh, affectations. Yeah, certain yeah, singers yeah. Had I, in the 80s. Well, uh, Ronnie James but Dio and the whole operatic thing, you know, uh, that never interested yeah. me, but uh, you know, yeah, there was this. Well, we we are, you know, interestingly, what you guys have hit on is we are back to the pre-Beatles yeah. era. Yeah, I mean, yeah. right now we are we are we are in a moment that is back to how much is that mm-hmm. doggy in the window, and everything is kind of trying to yeah. please everybody with very little quality control and utilizing the same structures and sounds and so well it's algorithm they're 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 using science and and data and and things like that data they're using data and 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 
it, sadly, I, I would say that sort of percolating beneath the, that surface, you're getting a lot of really interesting stuff. And there certainly is. But man, if I get another Americana <laughs> album in my inbox from a publicist that sounds exactly the same as the previous one and the one before that and the one before that, all that I received today, I mean, it's like really that the only sound is Wilco Circa 1995. Um, you know, there are some great uh, uh, records being made, but they're it is hard to find them and and it, and it was cool when there were these sort of movements like the beatles sort of led this movement in the uk and then there were all these offshoots the animals were part of an offshoot in the spencer davis group and then you had another one with the stones and you had another one with the who and another one with the kinks and they were all mm -hmm. different and there were there were a bunch of bands that sounded like the who there were a bunch of bands that sounded like the kinks there were a bunch of bands that sounded like the stones and they all had their silos and and you you can go down one of those endlessly and and the quality is maybe diminishing as you get further down the food chain but it was sort of endlessly artistic right now we've got sort of everybody's making their americana album and everybody's making the the album jenny lewis made yeah. three years ago well, I, I heard that album three years ago when yeah. Jenny Lewis made it. Yeah, or you have uh, you have bands anyway. like uh, you know the 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 Struts who kind of sound like Queen, or uh, Greta Van Fleet who sounds like Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, you, you, no. so and it and and they're 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 proud of that. They're like, yes, we we went back and stole that sound. Yeah. Well, Greta yeah. Van Fleet's been kind of coy about that <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Oh no, we don't really know Led Zeppelin. It's like fuck off. You know, Led yeah. Like your management's telling you not to say that. Just it's like when yeah, Kingdom yeah. Come oh, ripping yeah. off Led Zeppelin well, in the late eighties. Yeah, well, at least they had like, a, oh my god, you know, a kid of the drummer in the band, uh, sort of thing. So that makes sense. All right, any other takeaways that uh, you know a rock and roll archaeologist or digger uh, should take away from the film? I think it's I think it's definitely worth what is it 70 yeah. minutes long. I had a great time. Yeah. You know, I watched it to do prep and then I watched it the one time with Brian when we did the commentary. And I I got to say I had a good, I mean there were cringe-worthy moments in it. Jimmy said a lot of it a lot of it hasn't dead head again. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 but 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 even the bands and and a lot of it hasn't aged really well and a lot of the bands, you know, they aren't memorable for yeah. for good reason. But if you can put yourself in the mind of, you know, hey, it's 1965 in my living room for a little while and sort of take that trip back and appreciate it for what it was and see Eric, the unformed Eric yeah. Burden, you know, it's like yeah. the unformed Stevie Winwood. It's like, wow, these you can see why those guys had careers. They they lit up the screen even at 18 years old. Stevie 15, Winwood was like yeah, 15, yeah. 16 years old. And he was yeah. killing it. I mean, he like lit up the room yeah. right there. And he wasn't even in, in one of the tracks. He's sort of in the background. And you can't take mm -hmm. your eyes off him. So it's, it's worth it just for these like little moments. And also sonically, it's interesting because, you know, the sort of- Three different styles. The, you know, the, the different styles. And Matt Monroe, the quality of those tracks is really great. The Joe Meek produced tracks are really interesting, even if they're not great tracks. So there, there's a lot to be to be said, both sonically and visually. Um, the visuals are a little redundant, but you get to see people, you know, sort of some of these guys before they made it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's nice to see the Beatles, you know, the sort of 19 year old Beatles doing their thing. It's pretty, no, pretty amazing. Always. The so. Beatles are always amazing. So yeah. uh, was there yeah. something either one of you yeah, think no. you missed or want to add? 
Well, I was just going to say, I think what's interesting is that watching anything like this is time travel. Like if this is an 80s compilation, I'm sure oh, yeah. all of us have well, we'd all time know. going, yeah. Yeah. you know, because it, it's, it's this style. I mean, the, why the, why is the go-go's thing big? Because I think Gen X, even more than the boomers are really, we're, we're the first really pop culture savvy generation. I think that's why the 80s continues to be this very popular and influential decade. Everything happened at once from video games to personal computers to music videos, whatever. There was an explosion of technology and an explosion of all these, all the blockbuster movies. So, but I think when I go back, I, I do try to, I think it is, I, I think a lot of younger people actually now do appreciate older music. Like I know when we were growing up, we liked some older stuff, but a lot of us wanted our generation. That's usually what happens. You want the stuff that's happening at the time. And then you start to go, as you get older, you start to go backwards and go, oh, this is what influenced what I like. And then, oh, this influenced what influenced what I like. And I think they're actually, because of YouTube and Spotify and a lot of the streaming services, kids today have a, a wider, they, I think they listen to a wider oh, yeah. range of music than we did growing up because we had a little more limited means. However, I don't know oh. if they listen to it as deeply as we did. That There's a, there's that kind of weird dichotomy going on where like, you know, Christian yeah. or Jeff, you know, yeah, we'd sit down and we would, we'd listen to an album. You'd look at the, right. the liner. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If they had them, you know. Mm. But that's what I loved about metal releases back in the day. And I'm sure some indie rock albums did this where like on one side of the sleeve was just all the photos. They're, it's, like, it's like home movies, like all their Polaroid photos and everything put into a collage. The other side is the lyrics and all that. That was actually really important. I don't know that kids get that now because unless they're looking up at, at looking it up online, it's not showing up. I know Spotify tries to do that thing. I don't know if Pandora does it where there's like they'll have trivia that pops up on your phone if you're paying attention to it. But I do think some, yeah, I've, I've met a lot of younger people and maybe it's just because we're in the New York area that, Really, like I've I've met some like yeah, I don't know, thirty old kid who knows Uriah Heep is. I'm like, really? You know yeah, that? you know what? I, I, I'll I, so I you know my my daughter's eighteen, my son's twenty one. My daughter complains that when she goes, I mean, we're in Manhattan. She she went to a party out in New Jersey, and she said the music was really boring. You know, now she's in a musical household and she's been exposed to a lot. My son too, but um they don't see a uh, time period or whatever. They, they like yeah. whatever they like. My son likes mm -hmm. Tupac just as much as he likes Jimi Hendrix, just as much as he likes Fiddy Cent or what, whoever it is, Jay-Z, whatever, which is, great. Which is cool. Um, you know, and, and, and my daughter too, you know, she has stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s that she loves as much as the modern stuff. She went to a party in, in New Jersey a couple months ago before everything got crazy and it was, um, you know, she came back and it was like, you know, sort of a, to her, a boring Spotify pop, you know, Drake and whatever else was playing. That was just kind of like, it all sounded the same for three hours. I'm like, well, you know, that, that's typical of teenagers. And yet, okay, cool. So maybe outside of the, you know, in suburbia and outside of that, they're not getting too deep into oh the i don't think so i i i, I don't think right. um, yeah. uh, music holds uh the the cultural touchstone uh to today's uh kids as it did to us it's just it's just no no, no nobody nobody cares about no, music no. the way we did. so no. so therefore it's just no. not going to be um that deep uh it it, it is a, a thing that that is part of the background you know and i i've asked you know well well what what is the music that uh, is, is important to the kids i said it's not music it's social media it's that's their that's their touch right you know i will i will say something interesting that i i heard i don't think it was confidential but i was in a music industry meeting a couple of weeks ago and and somebody pointed out that the 
not everybody, and, and by and large, nobody other than the Beatles, but the Beatles' streaming numbers hold their own with, not like Drake or Beyonce, but with relatively big acts who are, you know, doing well and doing big business today. The Beatles' streaming numbers hold their own with that. And I think that, like, that blows my fucking mind. Because my, my daughter, you know, she has friends who come in here, you know, walk around the house, and they're like, they can't tell George from John or Paul from Ringo and, or if it's Jimi Hendrix and Paul McCartney, they can't tell the difference. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting that just based on no liner notes, no imagery, nothing. Just sonic. Just yeah. on the songs alone and the sonics of them hold up to whatever else is in their mm. current playlist. I think that's yeah. Blows my mind. Not She no. Loves You, yeah. not these songs from this DVD, but certainly like, and that's why George's music has risen to the top so much because something, and, and Here Comes the Sun, are beautiful recordings. Well, yeah, Abbey they're, Road, they're, they get the eight track, you know, and uh, that definitely makes a big deal. You know, yeah. Well, and they had the yeah. solid state board, you know, they, and, and it's mixed really well, and it's just, but, but those songs are so well structured and arranged and they're, you know, they're, they are very much like something by, you know, Bright Eyes or something, you know, another one of these, you know, they fit right in with those playlists. So I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable that, that they can do that. But anyway, that's totally an aside, but um, it was, it was fun. Yeah, doing this, yeah, guys. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that after the pandemic, people might appreciate music a bit more since we're not going to have concerts mm. for a while. Yeah, maybe that'll Absence be a boom. Absence makes I mean, the right heart now, grow great. Yes. I mean, the, the thing, the thing, they had a Spotify saying, oh, release music more than every three or four years, you know, which is, that's his easy way of saying, well, you just need, <laughs> we need you to make us more money. The only, only, only thing I'll agree with on that, and that sentiment is the idea that I think some artists do need to be releasing it shouldn't take four years to put out a record. Right? So although like I look at the new Evanescence record and Amy Lee is they're just doing a song at a time or one or two songs, they're doing it sort of piecemeal. And some artists are well, doing that. The, they're just putting out the, songs the, when they have them, which means you actually could get more, consi more that's consistent. That's a whole nother can like of worms, the, the fact that when the it was album driven. is not, well, it's not I, I think the thing anymore. The, the artists that I've spoken to, one of, the, one of the good things that has happened from this lockdown is that, you know, the albums that have taken months and months to make or years to make and, have you know committees have weighed in and labels have weighed in and managers have weighed in and data has been parsed no there are there are a lot of artists right now who are in the studio making records just because they have nothing yeah. else to do and i think it will be interesting to see over the next year year and a half two years what comes out of that because i know you know weller is making a record because he's got nothing to do and he's got a studio by his house Noel Gallagher just be, built a studio and he's making it out. You know, these people are just, they're just doing it because mm -hmm. why not? So we'll, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes out of that. I, I might add a, a, another component, Brian, so, to the, the, the need to take three or four years to come out with an album is because the record is not where the money is. It's the tour or what the touring was where the money is. So that oh, yeah. took precedence over, um, you know, sp spending time in the studio. Oh, sure. Well, I'm yeah. waiting for Jeff yeah. Slate's all well, things. Well, Brian Reisman, ah! Jeff Slate, uh, great having you both back on uh, the program. Thanks so much yeah. for being on Deeper Digs today. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. It was fun.
Let's give it up to Brian Reisman and Jeff Slate. Great job on the commentary for these two real-life ancient artifacts dug up and re-released for us to enjoy. Go order your copy of both That'll Be the Day, starring Ringo, David Essex, Billy Fury, and Keith Moon, along with Go-Go Mania, or Pop Gear, it's Pop Gear, uh, both from Kino Lorber Entertainment. Uh, and they can be found wherever you get fine films on Blu-ray or DVD or go to KinoLorber.com uh, to stream them. That's uh, K-I-N-O-L-O-R-B-E-R.com so you can stream them from their site. Of course, Brian can be found on the Pantheon Podcast Network with Side Jams or check out his website, BrianReisman.com. Jeff is at jeffslatehq.com, and he has a brand new album out called Lockdown Live that is exactly as it sounds, filled with both originals and covers, plus a lot of Bob Dylan. It is pulled together from all of his Thursday Facebook Live events since the pandemic began. Go buy it because all the proceeds go to charity. It was very cool getting a chance to watch these two uh, film releases, uh, or film re-releases, I should say. You know, I, I miss both back in the day. It, it was a fun afternoon watching the flicks and then going back and catching the commentary. Always nice to get a new perspective on rock and roll. Always something to learn from things like this. Uh, God bless the Brits. If they hadn't taken our export and turned it around and given it back to us, uh, I doubt we'd be talking about rock and roll today. In fact, I might even venture to say, me personally, I kind of prefer the Anglo version of the music more than the Americans. Not completely, but if I did a spreadsheet of my musical purchases over the years, it would be far more weighted to the Brits than the hometown heroes in America. And speaking of heroes, uh, really, this is by accident, a uh, stream of consciousness, I said heroes and it made me remember oh gosh i guess i should let you all know um since i get asked about it you know my own musical pursuits my band tin man just released our version of heroes 2020 we even did an old school mtv type of video to share uh, you can go to youtube and type in heroes tin man one word uh for the full on 4k version and let me know what you think um, there are a lot of heroes uh, out there right now, especially for those of us living in California. Uh, the fires, racial injustice, protests, and of course, uh, the pandemic. What a fucking year, huh? Well, we thought we should do something, and we chose a song that reflected what we wanted to say. 
And like Jeff's Lockdown Live, we are suggesting people donate to a charity uh, cause. Uh, we chose the California Fire Association. Um, but if you're up to it, um, you know, please, any, any giving uh, is good giving this year. All right. That's it for this week. Next week, I'll be adding to our immediate family series of interviews. We've had Leland Scalar and Russ Kunkel. And next, we'll be adding the great Danny Korchmar, who, like Russ and Lee, has played with everyone. It's another great one. Tune in next week. All right. Until then, you all know what to do. Peace and love. Well, that's for Ringo. For the rest of you, keep up the rocking. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're gonna leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die. Well, you give me all your loving and your dirt and loving. All your hugs and kisses and your money too. Well, you know you love me, baby. Tell me maybe that someday will I'll be blue Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry You say you're gonna Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios Engineered by Jerry Danielson Christy O'Donnell And Leslie Barker Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.